How old were you when you first engaged in sexual activity with a partner? Fourteen. How? With horse. How often were you having intercourse with animals at age 14? It's true. I fucked a pony. You are a genius. How did you know? You just said you had sex with a horse. No. Horse. Not horse. Horse. For 75 years, the Kinsey Institute, world famous for its study of human sexuality, has been a prominent part of Indiana University. That relationship could soon change. Tomorrow, university trustees could vote to create a Kinsey nonprofit separate from the university. The vote comes months after state lawmakers blocked public funding from the institute. And faculty say the proposal to split the institutions could do irreparable harm to the reputation of both. Ethan Sandweiss from Member Station WFIU has more. The Kinsey Institute has been controversial from its very beginnings. When Indiana professor Alfred Kinsey began studying and writing reports about human sexuality in the late 1940s. There were even efforts early on to defund the Institute. Each time, the university thwarted these attacks. Defunding became a reality earlier this year when freshman Republican Representative Larissa Sweet pushed a successful amendment to cut any state funds for Kinsey. She claimed that Kinsey researchers are conducting sexual experiments on children. Who knows what they're still hiding? Could they be hiding child predators? Democrat Matt Pierce, who represents the district where Indiana University is located, said those false claims have long been debunked. This amendment is based on old, unproven allegations of conspiracies that did not exist. Nevertheless, lawmakers approved the legislation which prohibits state funds from supporting the institute. Most of the Institute's money comes from grants, and it receives around $2 million a year from the university. IU says any financial impact from the new state law is negligible. Even so, the university proposes splitting the Kinsey Institute. The plan calls for making a nonprofit that would handle most of the administrative details for the research center without university money, while the Kinsey collections would remain at IU. It's a partial divorce that's generated lots of protest. Recently, demonstrators gathered around a bronze statue of Alfred Kinsey on the university's campus. Freshman Kylie Brown says administrators are making the wrong move. I think that we can't consider ourselves the same way if we got rid of the Kinsey Institute as part of IU. The organizer of the protest, Jennifer Bass, worked at the Kinsey Institute for 20 years. She says the administration is simply caving to political pressure. She held a scroll containing the signatures of 5,500 people who opposed the plan. Something has to be done. I appreciate that. But I believe strongly that there are other ways to do that other than separating the institute. Kinsey researchers like Professor Zoe Peterson say they weren't told about the proposal until two weeks ago, and they still have lots of questions. Peterson and other protesters say it's not just about money. It's about academic freedom. It's hard to imagine how this separation wouldn't impact the productivity of the work we do um, and the visibility of the work we do. IU Bloomington Provost Rahul Shravastov says he understands people feel uncomfortable with the plan, but creating a standalone Kinsey nonprofit will ensure research will continue without violating the law. I think a lot of their concerns are fear of the unknown, which is very normal. And when they hear some of the details, I think they are less concerned. However, Claude Cookman, who served on the board of the Kinsey Institute for many years, says Kinsey needs outspoken support from the administration more than ever. 
The legislator who brought this bill has said she's still coming after Kinsey. They're not going to quit. Whatever IU does in its relationship with Kinsey. Now, Kinsey's critics and defenders alike are waiting on the outcome of a trustee vote that could have deep implications for an institute that has long weathered attacks. For NPR News, I'm Ethan Sandweiss in Bloomington, Indiana. Deepfakes, or digitally altered images and videos, have exploded, along with the availability of free or cheap artificial intelligence tools. In a town outside New York City, high school girls found out that some students were sharing fake, nude images of them. Our family and tech columnist Julie Jargon has been reporting on this, and she's with me now. Julie, can you start by telling us what happened here? Several girls at Westfield High School in New Jersey noticed that some of their male classmates were acting a little funny. They were whispering among themselves, being quieter than normal. And then one of the boys told a group of girls what all of the whispering was about. It turns out that at least one student had used an AI-powered website to make pornographic images of the girls using their photos that were found online and then shared them with other boys in group chats. You mentioned an AI-powered website. Can you tell us more about the tech being used here? My understanding was that it was generative AI. I haven't been able to confirm with any authorities exactly which website it was. So there are dozens of face-swapping and clothes-removing AI websites that are either free or inexpensive. So it's really easy for people to find AI-generating websites that can create fake pornographic images of people. So, Julie, you've been speaking with the girls, their parents. What have they said about all of this? Well, a lot of the girls, it felt like not only was this an invasion of privacy, but that it made them feel powerless. A lot of the parents are really worried about how and and when these images might surface. You know, if these girls are applying for college or jobs in the future, if these images should show up in any sort of search, they'll be left having to explain what this all was about. But some of the girls now are saying that they want to become advocates for victims of this kind of situation and want to speak out about it. And what about school officials or authorities? What have they said about this whole situation? So the school officials haven't said too much. They haven't said how many students were involved or whether any disciplinary action had been taken. They did send out an email to parents, the principal of Westfield High School, in an email to parents said that she believed the images had been deleted and weren't being circulated. She called it a very serious incident and said that the school will continue teaching children about responsible technology use, and she encouraged parents to do the same. The police department in Westfield, New Jersey, is investigating this situation, and I spoke to the mayor of Westfield, and she was encouraging other people to come forward and provide statements to the police so that they can fully investigate this. As of when I published the story, Four parents had filed police reports about this incident. The other group involved in all of this is the tech companies, the AI companies. Have you reached out to any of them? What have they said about the situation? I spoke to the CEO of Reality Defender, which is a company that works with government agencies and private companies to detect AI-generated fake images. And 
what they said is that it's just so much easier now than it was just a couple of years ago to generate fake images and that they've become a lot more believable. It used to be easier to detect when something was a fake image. Now it's really difficult for the human eye to distinguish real from fake. So what kinds of rights or protections do children or their parents have here? At the moment, there's no federal law criminalizing the distribution of faked porn. However, there are laws covering child sex abuse material that could apply in this situation because those types of laws prohibit digital images and computer-generated images of minors. There are a handful of states that have specifically created laws outlawing the distribution of faked porn or that have given victims the right to sue the creators of such faked porn in civil court. The state of New Jersey currently has a bill pending in the state legislature that would criminalize the sharing of such material. And there was another case involving fake porn that recently did result in criminal charges. A 22-year-old Long Island man in April was sentenced to six months in jail for creating and posting faked images depicting women from his old high school. So we're going to see more situations like this popping up at probably high schools around the country, maybe colleges, and more state laws that would prohibit this type of material from being distributed. And the Biden administration just recently issued a broad executive order on AI, which called for the prevention of generative AI from producing child sexual abuse material. All right. That was our family and tech columnist, Julie Jargon. Did you say you saw someone steal a police horse this week? I'll send you the video, Gus. I sent it to the firefighter. All-time classic, all-time. It, it, it might have stopped when they pulled Reggie Barry out the car and Reggie Barry out the car. I mean, this was a, I'm going to send it to you. The brothers had his black towel with this, and they're like, where did you get the police? They stole the police. Come on, I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm totally wounded. That's Chicago. Uh, Gus, I just want to report that that, that, Stealing the cowboy, uh, stealing the horse uh, was a false report. The guy who was uh, videotaped, he actually owned that horse. And he was falsely accused of stealing a police horse and basically got his car spray uh, paint, uh, spray painted saying, return the horse. <laughs> yeah. So that was a false report. I can't do it. Before we begin the next story, here's a question for you. Where do you watch the show? most likely on social media, and you form the majority of news consumers. 56% people get their news from social media. That's according to a new global survey. What's more, 85% are worried about disinformation, and 87% believe it's hurting their country's politics. So the trend is clear. More people are going to social media to get news, even though they know that a lot of it may be fake. And this is not just a hot buzzword anymore, fake news. It's the reality of our times. We're living in the era of endemic disinformation, and its impact is massive, from geopolitics to mental health. Here's a report. Last year, on the morning of July 8th, former U.S. President Donald Trump took to Truth Social. That's a social media platform he co-founded. Trump claimed he had won the 2020 presidential vote in Wisconsin. This was a baseless claim. All evidence pointed to the contrary, but that didn't matter. The post went viral. It started with about 8,000 shares on Truth Social. 
Then it jumped from the app to other social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. It swiftly became a hot topic for podcasts, radio and TV shows. Within 48 hours of Trump's post, at least 1 million people had read or watched content about it. This untruth spread like wildfire. Not long ago, the fight against disinformation was focused on two platforms, Facebook and Twitter. Today, there are dozens of new platforms. While some have disinformation guidelines, many don't. Controlling fake news on social media is like trying to slay Hydra, the mythological multi-headed serpent. For every chopped head, the creature regrows two more. Similarly, for every regulated social media platform, there are several that run wild, all under the garb of promoting free speech. But no matter the source, disinformation is vast. According to a global survey by the UN, 85% of people are worried about the impact of online disinformation. 87% believe it has already harmed their country's politics. This has been accelerated by social media. It has become the main source of news. This is true for almost every country, from Austria to Algeria and India to America. According to a global survey, 56% of people get their news from social media, 44% from television and 29% from online media websites. The numbers are overlapping, but social media is the clear winner. Because with social media, news is faster than ever before. It's concise and tailor-made. But how credible is it? More often than not, it isn't. Do users trust it? Many say they don't. According to the UN, only 50% of people trust the information that social media provides, as compared to 66% for TV, 63% for radio and 57% for media websites. Tech giants know this. They know that hate speech and disinformation is pervasive on their platforms. Yet, when it's time to cut costs, the fight against fake news is not a priority. Reports say this year, YouTube quietly cut its small team of policy experts. Same with Alphabet. According to reports, it left only one person in charge of misinformation policy worldwide. Last year, X cut half of its fact-checking team. And Meta, the owner of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, has also shifted its resources to Metaverse. This is a trend across the industry, and it threatens to undo social media safeguards. The result is in front of us. During the pandemic, misinformation was everywhere, and people trusted inaccurate conspiracy theories. In the first three months of 2020, the world over, about 6,000 people were hospitalized due to this, and at least 800 lost their lives. Disinformation is also out and about in times of war. We saw this with the war in Ukraine, and now it's amped up again during the war against Hamas, with misrepresented video footage and mistranslations. It all starts online, but results in real-world fear, anxiety, stigma, finger-pointing, and even violence. We already know this, yet where are the guardrails? A global governance framework is a far-fetched dream. National or regional laws are hardly robust. So, tech giants continue to function with bare minimum regulations. They maximize profits at the cost of reliable information, while users pay the price. The city. These people, <laughs> making the rest of us feel like we don't belong. But they're no better than us. Look at how they treat their children. 
Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. Tonight, the KSHP 4119 following up on a lawsuit against Canica camps in Branson following years of abuse by a former camp director. A court filing recently revealed that the camp withheld information from parents. In 2009, former camp director Pete Newman confessed to sexually abusing more than a dozen kids. After a court convicted Newman that year, more campers came forward with their claims. Senior I-Team reporter Jessica McMaster shares how a lawsuit filed by Canica Camps itself sheds light on what it knew and when leaders knew it. I never thought that this truth would ever see the light of day. Nearly one year ago, Logan Yandel, a former camper and survivor of child sexual abuse, filed this civil lawsuit against Canacut Camps. Yandel claims the camp committed fraud by tricking families like his into settlements based on false representations made by Canacuck. This is the biggest sex abuse scandal that no one's ever heard about. The reason why no one's ever heard about it is because the insurance company and Canacuck did a really good job of covering it up. As a child, Yandel, like many others at the camp, was sexually abused by former director Pete Newman, who was convicted of his crimes in 2009. The camp's CEO, Joe White, has maintained he didn't know Newman was a threat until the day of Newman's arrest. Yandel says that's a lie, and now Canacuck admits it did no more. In a lawsuit filed against its own insurance company, Canacuck claims it kept information about Newman from families because Ace American Insurance company threatened to drop the camp's coverage. What they are now admitting is that they chose their coverage, their insurance coverage, over the well-being and safety of children that were under their care. The lawsuit doesn't specify what exactly Canacuck kept secret about Newman, but claims Canacuck planned to send 8,000 letters to families regarding, quote, Newman's activities, as laid out by Yandel in his lawsuit. Canacuck claims the insurance company will not defend the camp in Yandel's lawsuit due to the allegations of fraud. Canacuck is suing Ace for breach of contract, amongst other things. I do hope that this serves as a stark example as to how you would not react whenever you're dealing with this serial abuser within any organization. Um, you know, they really botched this. For the I-Team, I'm Jessica McMaster, KSHB 41 News. Jessica reached out to Canacuck for a response, and a spokesperson emailed her, quote, our policy is not to comment on litigation matters. In the meantime, we continue to pray for all who have been affected by Pete Newman's behavior. Okay, loneliness, that's, that's kind of personal, but uh, uh, I was uh, in the context of constructive interactions, um, I'm having like, uh, 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 um, what 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 should I what would one do about loneliness uh, in the context of having constructive interactions, where you don't have that many constructive interactions, but and it, and I guess you you start feeling like, you know, a lack of of those type of interactions bother you or you know make you feel lonely or whatnot. Okay, most people, including myself, we, we, we fight loneliness. The average person does not like to be lonely. There's a movie called From Here to Eternity, and uh, I think the character in it was Montgomery Cliff, and he asked the, uh, a lady that was in the movie, he made the remark to her that uh, about something, they were talking about something personal. Anyhow, she says, well, you know, I need you. 
He said, I want you to be around here because I need you. And the reason I need you is because I'm lonely. And then there was a silence. and He didn't say anything. And then she said to him, you think I'm lying, don't you? And he said something that I think is a lesson. Nobody ever lies about being lonely. After one Mr. Beast, let's talk about another kind of beast, a silent, deadly one. I'm talking about loneliness. It is as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, as lethal as consuming six alcoholic drinks a day. I know the festival season is here, so you may not want to talk about loneliness, but let's just say, if you're visiting your loved ones during the holidays, you may want to make a regular habit of that, to stave off an early trip to the grave. Sounds morbid, but hey, don't shoot the messenger. I'm not saying this. A new study is. Here's what it says. When people don't socialize with friends or family, the risk of early death increases by 39%. So does the risk of death from heart disease by 53%. For those who also live alone, it gets worse. They have a 77% higher risk of early death and an even higher risk of dying from heart disease or stroke. Before I tell you why, let's cover the basics. What is loneliness? It is the gap between the level of connectedness you want and what you have. And it's not the same as being alone. It is not the same as social isolation either. Loneliness is a subjective feeling. People can have a lot of contacts, a big family, many friends, and still feel lonely. Now, loneliness is not all bad. In small doses, it is like hunger or thirst. It's a healthy sign. It shows that you're missing something. But when that is prolonged over time, it can be deadly. Here's why. The human brain has evolved to seek safety in numbers, so it views loneliness as a threat. When lonely, the brain's danger monitor goes into overdrive. It triggers a fight-or-flight response. Your heart rate rises, your blood sugar and pressure levels increase in case you need more energy for a fight. More inflammatory cells are produced to repair damage. You begin to view other people as potential threats, not friends. And this creates a vicious cycle. You fear loneliness, which makes you lonelier, leading to strokes and heart disease, even dementia, inflammation, poor immunity depression, personality disorders, and suicide. And this is not as rare as you may think. 33% of adults are lonely the world over. The highest number is in Brazil, followed by Turkey, India, Saudi Arabia, Italy, and South Africa. In fact, studies say loneliness kills far more people in the West each year than terrorists and murderers. That's an absurd statistic. But loneliness is allowed to loom large simply because of its absurdity. It is a rare and strange malady. We know what it is. We know how to cure it. It also costs relatively little, yet it's difficult to beat. Because we live in a paradoxical world. Today, the world is more connected than ever through phones, social media, Zoom calls, you name it. But this is making us more isolated. Loneliness has nearly doubled between 2012 and 2018 which coincides with the explosion of social media use. And now an entire generation is at risk. Entire new generations are, are, are at risk, in fact. Polls find that young adults are twice as likely as seniors to report loneliness. Because time with screens cannot substitute for time with humans. 
The steps to tackle loneliness are not grand or high-tech. One of the best strategies is to simply be old school, eat meals together, hold parties, hang out to eat ice cream or play a sport, get to know your neighbor. It could be anything you like. Just do it at least once a month with someone else in flesh and blood or over a call. Word of caution, playing a virtual ping pong of Instagram reels does not count. At this point, loneliness is an epidemic. So it's not just an individual problem, it's a health crisis that demands government attention. So they must get involved too. In fact, Britain did. It got a Minister of Loneliness in 2018. It sounds bizarre, a Minister of Loneliness is less obvious than a Minister of Defence or Finance. But many countries think that this post is now necessary, like Japan and Sweden. They too have ministers for loneliness or social affairs. There have been calls in Australia and, on, and other countries for this same post too. Some nations have also employed other creative measures. The UK, Sweden, Ireland and Australia have adopted what they call a chatty bench. That's what it's called, a chatty bench, a park bench where strangers can talk to each other. So the solutions may be different, but my point is quite simple. As a species, humans are not meant to be lonely. We have to form close connections, like our life depends on it, because it does. Philosophers say you die alone. What they don't tell you is that it may happen a lot sooner if you are lonely. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. We spoke about India's pollution problem yesterday, especially the smog. We know how it affects the human body. Your lifespan gets cut. You develop breathing issues, sometimes even heart attacks. But tonight, we are not looking at the health impact. Tonight, we're looking at how smog could affect India's growth story, how it is affecting brand India. First, let's establish the link. Take a look at this. This report from 2015, it talks about then U.S. President Barack Obama's visit to India. The visit was in the month of January, so peak smog season in New Delhi. Now look at the headline. Mr. President, the world's worst air is taking six hours off your life. That's not all. Obama's wife, Michelle Obama, skipped most public events. She stayed in her suite all day. Again, pollution was blamed. Do you see the problem now? Obama was the first U.S. president to attend India's Republic Day Parade. It was a key moment in India-U.S. relations. But what was the headline? The air quality. The same, it's the same story with the Cricket World Cup. The tournament is India's chance to shine. Our team is doing really well. But look at the headlines. Choking smog shrouds Cricket World Cup. Bangladesh plays Sri Lanka amid very unhealthy pollution in New Delhi. Air pollution sparks alarm, dims World Cup cheer in India. And don't dismiss these as random headlines. Investors read them. Corporate leaders read them. And when they do, it impacts their thinking. Let me explain. Around 50% of India's GDP comes from outdoor sectors like construction or farming. Compare that ratio to Europe. There's only 25%. So if the air is bad, these workers will suffer, their productivity will drop. And the result? Some sort of impact 
on 50% of India's GDP. It's hard to say how much. One study mentioned losses up to $95 billion every year. That's around 2.5% of the GDP. The World Bank also published a paper. It said 4.5% of the GDP could be at risk by 2030. And that's not just because of air pollution, it's because of climate change at large. Either way, my point is quite simple. Air pollution affects the economy. It can also scare away investors. Just look at the situation in China. Many studies have linked China's air quality to investments. One of them was quite comprehensive. It looked at more than 2,000 firms in 230 Chinese cities. And what did they find? Higher pollution equals poor investments. There's a margin of 7 to 8%. Take any sector, it's the same story. Like tourism. One of the biggest attractions in India is the Taj Mahal. But look at it now. We showed you the pictures yesterday. It's shrouded in smog. Not to mention the health risks. Imagine falling sick on your holiday. It's guaranteed to ruin your whole plan. And going forward, this will be a major issue because India is increasingly in the global spotlight. Just think back to September. New Delhi hosted the G20 Leaders' Summit. What if this meeting was held this month or in December? The headlines would have been very different. And governments need to understand this. You can give all the tax breaks you want, all the subsidies and cheap labor, but that alone is not enough. You must live somewhere to work there. And right now, India's capital is borderline unlivable. The air quality index touched 500 last week. The ideal level, 0 to 50. We are at 500. Such readings have given the city a dark nickname, a gas chamber. That's what Delhi has become. So how do we solve this problem? Well, the first step is acknowledgement. Every government says pollution is the byproduct of development, sort of like a necessary evil. But data says the opposite. Pollution is choking our citizens. It is affecting economic output. It is driving away investors and it's dimming brand India. Our leaders must admit that first to tackle this problem. Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in L.A. Word. 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 I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. It's been nearly a decade since a study from Harvard researcher Raj Chetty shocked Charlotte by naming our region 50th out of 50 when it comes to economic mobility. Chetty is coming back to speak at UNC Charlotte next week, and WFAE is partnering to produce and live stream the event. This week, we're taking a look at some of the issues around economic mobility that Charlotte is still confronting, and what solutions might look like. Today, WFAE's Elvis Meneese has this report on food deserts and the connection between what we eat and how we prosper. Maurice Black pushes a shopping cart out of a convenience store on West Boulevard and Remount Road, where road work is underway. Black stops to point out the lack of places nearby offering healthy food. There's one, two, three, four restaurants right here in the same little block on the same little corner. And as far as healthy, I don't think they're healthy, you know. They're fried foods, there's everything but healthy. Black is from West Boulevard, 
in a neighborhood considered a food desert because of a lack of full service grocery stores. He's lived in the area for over 25 years. He says he would like to see a full service grocery store in his community. Yes, I would. I really would. I really would because we're in a neighborhood where we have kids growing up that deserves to have healthy foods. Black is homeless. He says he shops at the convenience store daily and his diet consists of cookies, chips and candy. He says if there was a grocery store in the area, his diet would instead contain vegetables and fruits, which he says would probably help his high blood pressure. Black says the lack of full service grocery stores in the neighborhood makes it difficult for seniors who can't drive. They have no way to get to the store. They have to call cabs and uh, you know cabs in Charlotte are very expensive very expensive. So there's no way to get around. I mean, you have to literally ask people for rides or you have to pay for a cab. Or you have to get on the bus. And can you imagine older people getting on the bus with bags of groceries? You know, it's, it's hectic, man. That's, it's, it's difficult. Black says the money residents dish out to pay for a cab to get groceries could be used for other purposes. You can have that $30 here to, last, to help you last you the rest of the month. You know, your attitude would be a lot better. You know, if I had to spend $30, man, for nothing, you know, when I can get a, go around the corner and have it free, it makes my attitude a whole lot better. In 2015, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Food Policy Council highlighted West Boulevard, Brookshire Boulevard, between I-85 and Interstate 485 and Albemarle Road as areas at high risk for food insecurity. All of them lack full-service grocery stores and require long drives to stores that sell fresh produce. But data the council collects shows there have been some slight improvements since the report. West Boulevard and Berkshire Boulevard still very much shows having little to no access to a full-service grocery store. Um, but it appears there's been a little bit of improvement along Albemarle Road. Um, not much, but perhaps one store that has opened up and increased access. That's Colleen Hammerman, an associate professor of geography and earth science at UNC Charlotte, who served on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Food Policy Council's board. She says the history of segregation and systemic policies mean certain demographics don't have access to full-service grocery stores. The neighborhoods that are lacking access to a full-service grocery store are not only low-income, they're also neighborhoods of color. Um, so it's where you're going to find majority black neighborhoods and where you're going to find majority Hispanic neighborhoods. Hammerman says grocery store companies consider factors that put some neighborhoods at a disadvantage. What's the density? What's the spending power of the people who live there? Um, what's their profile? Do they think they're going to have enough customers come through the door in order to make a profit? And today, those calculations for the West Boulevard corridor do not make it an attractive place for grocery stores to locate. Um, and that has been the case for several decades. Hammerman says that not having access to healthy food can hurt a person's ability to climb the socioeconomic ladder. If you are trying to get a better job, if you're trying to get education, if you're trying to get all of these things that we've been looking at that are a pathway towards upward socioeconomic mobility, but you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, right, or you haven't had meals that day, right, you are much less equipped to be able to achieve those goals. Local historian Michael Moore recalls when West Boulevard had a full-service grocery store. Around the 1960s, Moore says large home builders created subdivisions such as Clanton Park and Ponderosa. 
Moore says these subdivisions were segregated and only white families were allowed to buy homes in these areas. As the area grew and became more dense and the percentage of white residents grew, the young Harris Teeter supermarket moved onto West Boulevard and opened into business on West Boulevard in 1961. So now you have a larger, denser community can support, can support a market and Harris Teeter recognizes that and they come to town. That changed starting around 1970. Several large apartment complexes were erected, including the two large new public housing authority uh, properties, Dalton Village and Boulevard Homes. And most of the white families who bought into these neighborhoods, they sold out and they moved away. And even though hundreds of middle-class black families then moved into neighborhoods like Clanton Park, Ponderosa, Harris Teeter chose to not renew its lease and it moved out of the neighborhood in 1976. Wayne's supermarket would take Harris Teeter's spot in the corridor. Moore says Wayne's offered less selection than bigger chain stores and sold produce and meat that residents considered lower quality. Wayne's closed at the end of the 1990s. Off Clanton Road and West Boulevard today, there's a coming soon sign for a co-op grocery store. Ricky Hall is the board chair of the West Boulevard Neighborhood Coalition. Hall says the coalition plans to bring a co-op grocery store into the corridor for several reasons. It's to provide fresh, healthy food and vegetables and grocery amenities. Two is to provide good-paying jobs. Three is to use it as a springboard for greater community involvement and investment. It's going to be more than a grocery store. Hall says residents will be able to buy into ownership of the store for a small fee and play a role in changing their community's trajectory. The city, county and federal government have contributed around $5 million to support the market's total cost of $10 million. market is an example of a community-driven solution to create economic mobility and address some of those maladies that are identified by the Chetty study. Hall says the arrival of the co-op will highlight how residents are able to solve community issues. If you've got a problem, you're not looking for others to solve that problem. You put your hands to the wheel or to the plow and you start working towards addressing it from the inside rather than the outside. And so that's what we have done and this is going to create a, a, a source of immense pride for residents in the West Boulevard corridor and in our target market area. The coalition plans to break ground on the co-op next year. For WFA News, I'm Elvis Menayese. All this week we've been reporting on how things have changed or not, in the decade since Charlotte was named 50th out of 50 places in the U.S. for economic mobility. The study was published by Harvard researcher Raj Chetty, who's coming back to speak at UNC Charlotte next week in partnership with WFAE. One of the biggest ways people can build wealth and lift their families out of poverty is through home ownership. But as WFAE's Nick Delacanal reports, it's only gotten harder for people to buy their first home in our fast-growing city. Meet Andrea Bercy. She's 34 years old, has a good-paying job in sales, and has lived in Charlotte for most of her life. Just this summer, she started thinking seriously about buying a home. I was looking at places on Zillow. I was, you know, looking at houses, and I came across a townhome in particular that was in an area I was interested in living in. It was listed for $267,000, 
And even though she knew she wasn't prepared to make an offer, it kind of sparked something in me to like, maybe I should start looking. She reached out to a family friend who was also a real estate broker and said she was serious about buying. Looking back, Mercy says she may have had unrealistic expectations. I think a lot of people, including myself or so, you know, or at least I was a little naive about how much it actually cost in comparison to what, you know, the coming out of college, at least for someone my age, what you thought you would get a house for. Mercy graduated college in 2013. At that time, the median home price in Charlotte was about $184,000. Today, it's $435,000, well over twice as much. The cost of Charlotte has gone up as far as purchasing a home, where we know the incomes haven't gone up as much, especially in certain communities. That's Bercy's realtor, Belinda Carr of Elite Homes of the Carolinas. She thinks that's a big reason why the percentage of Charlotteans who own their homes has been declining from 66% in 2009 to 60% in 2021. And it's not just higher prices. You're competing against people with equity, people who have cash, outside investors, whether it's out state, out of the country. So it's a lot of competition. It's hard to compete with a person or entity making an all-cash offer or an offer tens of thousands of dollars above the asking price. This matters for economic mobility because buying a home is one of the best ways to build generational wealth. It benefits the individual now, and it can also benefit their family later. Carr herself is an example of this. Her parents were first-generation home buyers, and when her mother died, Carr used some of the money from the sale of her parents' home to make a down payment on her first home in 1997. Because they owned, that goes down to that legacy building. Home ownership in America is the foundation of wealth. That is the cornerstone to the American dream. Winston Robinson sips coffee inside the black-owned Archive Coffee Shop off Beattysford Road in West Charlotte. He says the fact it was legal to discriminate against black home buyers up until the Fair Housing Act of 1968 is a big reason why black home ownership still lags behind other groups. We don't have the generational wealth to say, here, you can, I give it to you for, for it. No, no, no. We just got to scrap. That's why in 2021, he founded A Vibe Called Fresh. It's an annual block party in West Charlotte that educates black residents on home ownership and down payment assistance programs. The whole idea was I don't want it to be a timeshare presentation. I would believe you more if you tried to convince me less. He tries to make the event fun with an outdoor roller rink, music, and food. We would even have like panel discussions, <laughs> played with like trap beats underlined. I had a DJ spinning as we talked. It was ridiculous, but uh, effective. Even if a home buyer finds down payment assistance and connects with a realtor, finding a home can still be difficult. Andrea Bercy, who started looking for homes over the summer, says she wanted to make an offer on one home. But the seller turned her away because she was using an assistance program. So I wasn't able to move forward with that property because I was seeking out down payment assistance. Eventually, she settled on a small townhome in Mount Holly that's under construction with a February completion date. She says on one hand, she thinks she's making a good move in the long term. But in the short term... I'm going to be spending twice as much on my mortgage than I would be on rent. Now, twice as much space, and it's going towards the equity of my home, and it's mine. 
and while her only roommate for now will be her dog, she hopes one day she will meet a partner and start a family, and that someday that townhome could be the foundation of the next generation's wealth. For WFAE News, I'm Nick Delacanal. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. A local football coach says his players were targets of racial slurs during a playoff game Friday night. And when he complained to the officiating staff, he was kicked off the field. Yeah, this coach tells KDK that it happened during a Whippeal first-round game between Burrell and Mohawk. Shelly Bortz talked with Burrell's football coach and joins us now with more on what happened. Shelly. Yeah, guys, head coach Sean Liotta says some of the players from Mohawk continually taunted some of his players using racial slurs. So hurtful, some of those players actually walked off the field in tears. There's no place for racism in society. There's certainly no place for racism in high school athletics. Borough head football coach Sean Liotta was ejected with 11 seconds left in the first half against Mohawk Friday night after walking onto the field to confront the officials. Liotta says not once, not even twice, but numerous times during the first half of the Class 2A first round playoff game, he and other coaches on his staff heard Mohawk players taunt some of his players using the N-word. We brought up multiple times to the officiating crew during the game that this was going on. I begged them. I begged them on several occasions, can you please address this issue? Liotta says those pleas to the officials fell on deaf ears. And while some believe Liotta was upset because his team trailed 20 zip at that point, he says it had nothing to do with the score and everything to do with protecting his kids. My duty is to make sure that they are protected, to make sure that this type of stuff does not occur. I don't stand for this type of stuff. Um, it needs to be brought to the light. Um, just because it happens far too often. It happens every week, and, and nothing ever gets done about it. It gets swept under the rug. We reached out to the WPIAL, who says Liotta was ejected from the game because he walked onto the field and used profanity when officials threw penalty flags. In addition, several of his players were also ejected in the second half for unsportsmanlike conduct, which Liotta says was because they were riled up by Mohawk's actions. Now, when I have kids coming off the field in tears, you know, before the half, I had to I had to go address that with the officials. I do what anybody would do. When you coach, that's what you do. You care about the kids. You know, we care about their well-being, and 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 I, I would do it again a hundred times over. The WPIL suspended Liotta for the first two games of next season, which he tells us he plans on appealing. We also reached out to Mohawks head football coach, but never heard back. Reporting live tonight in Lower Borough, Shelley Boards, KDKA TV News. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We got to have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. All rise for the Honorable Judge Marshall Stevens. Let's face it, unless you're a lawyer or a judge, or maybe a cop, 
A lot of your knowledge of how the criminal justice system works probably comes from a movie or a TV show, including the idea of money bail. I'm going to set your bail at $3,000. Your bail is $20,000. $50,000 bail. $2,000 and better throw this jackass out of my court. Yes, Your Honor. If you pay a set bail amount, you don't have to stay in jail between your arrest and your trial. It's also thought that paying bail gives you an incentive to stay out of additional trouble, assuming you're guilty, of course, and an incentive to show up for your trial. But critics say the money bail system is exploitative and riddled with injustices that hurt the poorest of the accused. Those are reasons why Los Angeles County just eliminated cash bail for many criminal offenses. And that sparked a backlash from people who say that is a recipe for creating even more crime. Saul Gonzalez is L.A.'s co-host of KQED's The California Report, and he picks up the story from here. On a recent morning, a throng of reporters gathered at the Superior Court building in Van Nuys. They were there for something that usually gets little media attention, a bail hearing. But this hearing was for Fraser Michael Baum. Baum's the 22-year-old who's accused of killing four Pepperdine University students on Pacific Coast Highway in October when he struck the students with his BMW at more than 100 miles per hour, according to authorities. Baum's bail was set at $4 million for multiple counts of murder and vehicular manslaughter. A figure of Baum's defense attorney, Michael Kraut, complained to me was too high and unnecessary. The issue is, how does it affect public safety? Because if they allow him out at $4 million and he was able to afford it, and they give the same restrictions of don't drive, don't have weapons, and don't harm anybody, what's the difference between doing that at at $100,000? The bail becomes punitive. Baum's affluent family was able to post the $4 million bail, and he's now out of jail as he awaits trial. But what if you don't have money to afford bail and the freedom that paying it brings? If you don't, if you don't have the money, you don't have family to help you out, you're going to sit in there and suffer. Like, nobody wants to be in jail. It really sucks. That's James White, who I also met at the Van Nuys courthouse on the same morning as Fraser Michael Baum's bail hearing. White says he once got arrested for small-time drug possession and couldn't afford the $1,500 bail amount set for him. So what did not being able to pay bail mean for you? I'd have to stay in jail until I figure it out. It's hard on everybody because they got a job or they got a house or apartment. They can't pay their bills. They can't go and do things they have to do before they get arrested. James White and Fraser Michael Baum are examples of the central role money has long played in determining who stays behind bars and who doesn't in the criminal justice system. Just ask David Slayton. If you make bail, you're out. If you don't make bail, you're in. Slayton is the executive officer of L.A. County's Superior Court System. And so the ways that that can happen are, again, you know, traditionally money bail. So people pay some sum of money either in cash to the court or they they contract with a bond company, a bail bond company, to put up some promise of uh, money to uh, get out. It's the only way to get out of jail pre-conviction. And if you do turn to a bail bond agency, it'll often keep 10% of the posted bail, whether you're found guilty or innocent. So if you pay a $50,000 bail, the median bail amount in California, bond agencies will keep 5000 But because of a judge's ruling earlier this year, Los Angeles County's money bail system is ending for all kinds of criminal offenses. It's a big change with huge consequences, says Slayton. 
you know, obviously it impacts everyone. Um, all of us who are members of this community are concerned about public safety. Uh, and so making sure that we get this right is really important. Starting last month, most people who were arrested in L.A. County for what the state classifies as nonviolent, non-serious misdemeanors and felonies, which includes most thefts and vehicle violations, are being released quickly and without paying a single cent of bail. That has criminal justice reform advocates like Professor Alicia Verani with UCLA's pre-trial justice clinic cheering. Verani calls the money bail system, as it's long existed, discriminatory and unfair. It is unjust because it, uh, the same two people charged with the same crime, same criminal history, same everything, one person has the funds to pay their bail amount and can secure their release pre-trial and go on uh, living their life, and the other person is unable to simply because of what is not in their wallet, which leads to a whole host of negative collateral consequences for the individual who cannot pay. Those consequences can be lost work days, not being able to get needed health care, or missing family responsibilities. But the elimination of money bail as a remedy to inequity has sparked a backlash in a county where concerns about crime are high. More than two dozen cities in L.A. County, including Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, Lancaster, and Downey, have sued the county over its bail reforms, arguing they're a threat to public safety. Claudia Frometta is the mayor of Downey. You know, the message that we're sending criminals is, you know, there's impunity. They will be cited and, and released. And the bail reforms have become a regular punching bag on conservative talk radio, like KFI. In summary, most arrestees will not be held in custody, but instead released immediately. Right. So the guy can Catch steal my car and he's not going to spend a minute in jail. Remember, this is all part of a reform package. No. Reform is a, is a crap word. That's another one of these euphemisms they use to cover up uh, their, their anarchy. There's also opposition to bail reform within the criminal justice system. My fear is, is that people who should be in custody are not in custody. That's Eric Siddall, an L.A. County deputy district attorney who's now a candidate for D.A. It is very logical that someone who has a gun, who is a serious or violent felon, should not be roaming the streets immediately after they were caught with their gun. I just, I think it's extremely dangerous because a violent felon with a gun is basically an attempted murder waiting to happen. But David Slayton of L.A. County Superior Court says what's dangerous is the amount of bail reform misinformation and exaggeration out there. You know, what I've heard people talk about is that there's no accountability, that no one can be booked in the jail anymore, that it's catch and release. And every single one of those statements is 100 percent false. Slayton reminds the public that capital crimes, such as murder, still aren't eligible for zero-money bail release, like Fraser Michael Baum, who's charged with killing the four Pepperdine students. And many people accused of serious offenses like sexual battery are now subject to a judicial magistrate's review of their criminal record before they're let go without bail. Slayton says in many cases, that will mean people who pre-reforms would have automatically left custody if they could post bail will now stay behind bars. And so the, what's changed now is that instead of focusing on the money situation, we are doing an individualized determination of each person's risk to the public and risk to the victim safety and risk of not showing back up to court. Um, in fact, what the data shows is that there are many people that are being arrested for these offenses, which are high risk, that would otherwise have been getting out on money, where our judges are saying there are no conditions under which we can safely release this person in the community pre-arraignment. And so those people are being held.
An early study by the L.A. Superior Court shows that the first few weeks of L.A. County's bail reforms seem to be working, with a tiny fraction of people who've been booked and then released without paying bail getting rebooked. Reform advocates say that shows it's possible to remedy injustices in the bail system while keeping the people of Los Angeles County safe. For KCRW, I'm Saul Gonzalez. And some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? To the South Bay, he broke up a fight and disarmed a man. Many would call him a hero, but he was the one that was shot four times by police. It all happened in San Jose last year, and it turns out now that the policeman who shot the man has been sending racist text messages. Dalin has that story. Officer Mark McNamara can be seen in the surveillance video shooting and injuring Kayon Green in March 2022. Green is stunned by the racist texts. He felt no way in his heart that he was wrong. It's pretty scary to me. San Jose police released the text messages McNamara reportedly sent to two people, where he bragged about shooting Green and repeatedly used the N-word. He reportedly wrote, quote, I hate black people. I never thought somebody could just have that much hatred in their heart to where they would want to kill me just because of what I look like. The 22-year-old Green is still recovering mentally and physically. The San Francisco City College defensive end says football is his therapy. I used to be able to, to dunk a basketball. I can barely jump off my left leg now. Everything pretty much hurts, but just because I don't want to go through any more depression or just be so down on myself, I just force myself to play. San Jose police say McNamara shot Green four times, twice in the arm, once in the stomach and knee. Surveillance video shows a man pulling out a gun during a fight in a restaurant. Green disarmed the man. The officer shot Green as he backed away from the man holding the confiscated gun in the air. Doing the right thing was being a hero. McNamara resigned after investigators found the text messages where he reportedly mocked Green and his attorneys. Attorney Adante Pointer reads one of the texts. Think I give a F what y'all think? I'll shoot you too. And then he laughed. They should all be bowing to me and bringing me gifts since I saved a fellow in word by making him rich as F. Otherwise, he would have lived a life of poverty and crime. The attorneys say because of his racial bias, they believe the shooting was premeditated. They want the district attorney to file criminal charges against McNamara. They also want the state to decertify him so he'll never work as an officer again. As for Green, he says he won't let the incident hold him back. I'm still hoping to make it to the NFL. For me, it's like leave or bust, so I'm trying to put everything I have into that school and on the field. Green and his attorneys filed a civil lawsuit against the city of San Jose. It's scheduled to go to trial next year. Green's attorney says a racist text are a sign there is a culture of racism on the force. To where racism of those carrying badges and guns not only survives in the San Jose Police Department, but thrives. 
The San Jose Police Officers Association's president responded to that claim with the following statement. It's unfortunate that in the pursuit of financial gain, Mr. Green's attorney has no difficulty pointing at the racist thoughts and behavior of one individual and then painting every officer with the same brush. It is a testament to the culture of the San Jose Police Department that our internal affairs investigators found these texts, reported these texts to the chief of police, and the chief took immediate action to rid the cancer of Mr. McNamara. The man, the man not, race, race, class, class genre, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Um, one of the people that has been in court every single day is our Kevin Bond. And he is joining us now. And Kevin, now you've gone through the first trial, now this second trial. A lot of the same evidence presented in both trials, if you will, because so much of the emphasis is on what killed Elijah McClain. That's right, Kim. The prosecution case was nearly identical in these two trials. Of the 24 or so witnesses called each time, 21 or 22 of them testified in both trials. So the prosecution case was very similar. The difference in this case from the first one is that the defense put on a case. You'll remember in the earlier trial, those two officers, the defense called no witnesses and rested without uh, putting anything before the jury. And that case, of course, ended with one officer being found guilty, one being acquitted. In this case, the defense did put on witnesses, focusing heavily on the conduct of the paramedics. And a little while ago, the jury returned this verdict acquitting Nathan Woodyear of reckless manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide in the death of Elijah McClain. And again, we talk about what happened here. We talked about the state getting involved in this case, but it was also the echoes of George Floyd that animated a great deal of this. And we, we talk about police contacting people on the street. And the genesis of Elijah McClain's death was that, that interaction between Aurora PD and a young man walking home. And so now we've completed these trials as far as what initially happened with the police and Elijah McClain, and next we'll move into to the EMT part of this, what happened once he was on the ground, once he had been, uh, you know, wrestling with officers, if you will. And how soon is that again, Kevin? I know it's, it's what, a couple weeks? The paramedics are scheduled to go on trial November 27th. All indications are that trial is going to go ahead as planned. Uh, jurors are going to be brought in actually on November 17th to fill out questionnaires. So that jury selection process is going to start in just, uh, just a couple of weeks. You have to be interested as to how that trial has taken shape because yes. these first two trials did focus, including via the prosecution, on the ketamine, and it does seem like there's been a lot of weight pushed towards that, the ketamine, the coroner's a decision about ketamine, and what that might mean for that next trial. Yeah, that's been the, the whole argument here. Even the prosecution has argued and acknowledged that the ketamine administered Elijah McClain, stopped his heart, and caused his death. They've argued secondarily that the actions of the officers put Elijah McClain into a life-threatening situation, that he might have died even without the ketamine. And they further argued to the jury that these officers and the paramedics sort of were all complicit with each other, that this was one act that played out over about 18 and a half minutes on an Aurora street, along an Aurora street, and that they were all involved with each other. Obviously, in this case, this jury saw it differently. I wanted to note that uh, the jury test, uh, deliberated for about three and a half hours on Friday. They came in this morning about 8.30. A little after one, the courtroom doors were unlocked. We all went inside to see what was going on. There was a question from the, the jury. The 
jury had a question about the definition of the word abet, which was in the jury instructions. And it took the lawyers for uh, Mr. Woodyard and for the prosecution and the judge uh, a good half an hour to work out the answer he was going to give to the jury. And that answer went back about 2.10 or so. And it was about 30 minutes later that we notified that there was a, a verdict in the case. Kevin, I have a question because I know Chris has done so much on the carotid hold and we've talked so much about this neck hold. When you heard him testify, take the stand his own defense, and, and we know that Elijah was vomiting and was on the ground, vomiting in his mask. How, besides the fact he thought he was going to die, how did he justify that decision? Well, it was, it was this statement made by the officer who was convicted in the first trial, Officer Randy Rodima, that said, uh, he, his exact words were, he just grabbed your gun, dude, which, which uh, Officer Rosenblatt presumably and Officer Woodyard definitely interpreted as Elijah McLean was trying to get a hold of somebody's gun during that struggle. And so when he testified, Nathan Woodyard said, you know, that he, the first thought that went through his mind was that he was about to be shot. And that uh, justified the use of a carotid hold and an effort to get him restrained so that uh, he could not do that. Of course, the prosecution has raised the question a number of ways about whether that, that quote-unquote gun grab actually happened. Uh, it's impossible to tell from the body camera footage. You'll remember that a couple of the cameras ended up on the ground. One of them that somebody was still wearing is pressed up against another person. So all we really have from that whole sequence is audio, not really good video. So it's hard to know exactly what happened. But that was the justification for the use of that carotid hold, which is designed to cut off blood and oxygen to the brain, render a person temporarily unconscious, basically so that the police can get that person handcuffed. It's taken four years from when that body camera video first happened to, to now. And then you're in the courtroom and that verdict is read and it obviously elicits different responses from different sides of the room. Can you talk about that, the emotion in the room at the moment? Yeah, the, the courtroom was pretty full, I have to say. I, I didn't count the people, but there were 40 people there maybe. Uh, there were definitely gaps, gasps on both sides of the courtroom. I was on the uh, left side behind the prosecution table in the front row. Elijah's mother, Shanine, was sitting next to Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. He had his arm around her. Many members of uh, Officer Woodyard's family and his friends were on the opposite side of the courtroom behind the defense. And there were definitely gasps when that verdict was read. Um, neither side asked, you know, there's this process where the, the either side can ask the judge to poll the jury. In other words, make each juror stand up individually and affirm that that was their verdict. Neither side asked for that. Um, that sometimes happens. And then, um, you know, uh, Nathan Woodyard is free to leave the courthouse. He's been acquitted in this case. Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. <laughs> Hey, a nigga raped me. Yeah, guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggas, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We gotta have a lineup. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. <laughs> Tonight, in a city that prides itself on comebacks and values fortitude, perhaps above all else, a man who, as a teenager years ago, was busted wrongly as one of the infamous Central Park Five attackers, has been elected to the New York City Council tonight. Yusuf Salam, soon an elected official of a city that wrongly arrested him, wrongly put him into prison, and then, drenched in scandal and humiliation, paid him millions. Here's Jim Dolan.
when the city council candidate arrived tonight. It looked pretty much like any other victory celebration, but this candidate's story isn't even a bit like any other. The beautiful thing about my story is that I was counted out. I was one of those who was pushed into the margins of life. And now we're here right now. But it has been some journey. Yusuf Salam was just 15 years old when he, along with four others, were arrested and later convicted for the rape and beating of a woman in Central Park in what came to be known nationally as the Central Park Jogger case. The brutal assault of a white woman in Central Park, allegedly by a group of black and Latino teenagers, riveted the city and inflamed racial tensions in New York and the nation. A young real estate developer named Donald Trump poured gas on that fire by calling for the execution of the five in a full-page ad in several New York newspapers. But Salam and the other four were innocent and later exonerated using DNA evidence. Salam served eight years in prison. Tonight, Yusuf Salam was elected to the New York City Council from Central Harlem and said his journey is his people's journey. They look at the color of our skin and not the content of our character. Today is a new day. In the darkest days, I didn't imagine much light at all. Salam's mother has been with him through all of it. The whole family worked on that to try to see that he came out of this situation as whole as possible. Mr. Salam does not mind talking about the bad days. He doesn't even mind talking about the worst days. He says there are lessons to be learned in all of them. He's just glad the story didn't end there. Did you ever think you weren't going to make it? I never thought I wasn't going to make it. I keep my eyes on the prize. I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. I knew that I was counted out, but as they say, a setback is a great thing for a comeback. And look at this comeback that we are coming back to right now. Oh, man. You know when I work, I ain't your slave, right? You know I ain't shucking and jiving and high-fiving. You know this ain't back in the days, right? And from WIPR News, I'm Jim Howard. Former Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby has been found guilty of two counts of perjury in her federal trial. Jurors reached that verdict this afternoon at the courthouse in Greenbelt following a little less than a day of deliberations. Prosecutors said Mosby lied about experiencing financial hardship due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us live is WIPR's Wamboy Kamau, who is still at the courthouse. I understand it's been a hectic day there. Take us into the courtroom and tell us what it was like when the verdict was announced. So we got word late this afternoon that the jury had reached a verdict. Reporters and Mosby supporters all scrambled to get a good seat in the gallery. And shortly after 4 o'clock, jurors filed in. I could see Mosby sitting next to her counsel. She was very attentive and stared right into the jury box. After a roll call and some court customs, Madam Fourperson stood up announcing the decision, which, as you have mentioned, is that they had found her guilty of perjury on two counts. The first is related to the first withdrawal she made in May of 2020, and the second is for repeating that action in December of 2020. Was there any word from Mosby or the prosecution or the defense when this was over? No word from either of those parties, Jim, other than to say no comment as they exited the courthouse. When asked for a reaction to the verdict, Mosby folded her lips as if kind of thinking of a response and then said, no, I'm blessed, as she was escorted into her SUV 
by her defense and a police detail. We have that video, and you can watch it on our website at WIPR.org. Another reaction that we got was from Eric Darren, who is the U.S. Attorney for Maryland, and he said that he respects the jury's decision and remains committed to the mission of upholding the rule of law. What about any jurors? An amount of money and time that was put into a case like this, a waste. It was such a waste. That's what I'm mad about. It was just such a waste. Well, we can't even get any justice in the courtroom to solve some of these homicides and to take some of the stuff that's going on and get some justice and some peace for us that they would find this. It's just like they go after all our black politicians. That's the bottom line. I don't want to lie to nobody or be standing up here pretending. You just heard from Daphne Alston. She is someone who has been friends with Mosby for over 15 years, been at the courthouse to support her friend, and that was part of her reaction of the outcome. But uh, no jurors were willing to talk. Okay, so definitely a lot of different reactions to the verdict. Uh, what's next for Mosby? Did the judge, uh, Kay Gigsby, or what did the judge say? The judge has not set a, a sentencing date for Mosby. The charge carries a maximum penalty of 10 years, but most people who are convicted in the federal system don't serve the maximum penalty. And in addition to that, Mosby is also charged with mortgage fraud. She also has that case coming up, and a date for that has not yet been set. Okay, so this WIPR's Wamboy Kamal reporting from the courthouse in Greenbelt. Wamboy, I know it's been hectic there, and I know getting this to us live uh, this time was a little bit hectic. I appreciate the call. I appreciate your time there. I'll let you collect it. I know we're going to have more from you uh, tomorrow morning on uh, Morning Edition. Thank you for your, your troubles. That's right. Thank you, Jim. Take care. You have a good one. That was uh, WIPR's Wamboy Kamal at the courthouse in Greenbelt telling us that the former city state's attorney has been found guilty on two counts. We have continuing coverage tonight. Now that Marilyn Mosby has been convicted of two counts of perjury, Fox 45 News is looking at the verdict and what comes next. Good evening, I'm Kai Jackson. And I'm Maxine Stryker. We have continuing team coverage on the guilty verdict tonight. Jeremy Eldridge from EN Lawyers is joining us live to break down the decision, a potential appeal, and what comes next. But first, let's go to Fox 45's Amy Simpson as that reaction continues to come in. Amy? Yes, Maxine Kai, some keeping their words mild, saying things like the jury has spoken, but... Others, like Baltimore's police union, sharing some harsh words for Marilyn Mosby. In 2019, she was once Baltimore City's top prosecutor. Now, a jury finds Marilyn Mosby guilty of two federal perjury charges and Baltimore's police union not mincing words after the conviction, taking to social media within an hour of Thursday's guilty verdict. Marilyn Mosby brought a city to its knees almost a decade ago with her lies regarding the Freddie Gray case. The FOP3 said, in part, she continued her campaign to destroy the rule of law in Baltimore throughout her tenure as state's attorney. The police union ending its message saying, karma, Marilyn. Mosby, who spent eight years as Baltimore City state's attorney, made national headlines when she indicted six Baltimore police officers after the death of Freddie Gray in 2015. We have probable cause to file criminal charges. None of those officers were ever convicted. And in 2021, Mosby announced her office would no longer prosecute what she called low-level crimes. Clearly, the data suggests that there is no public safety value in prosecuting these low-level offenses. 
Marilyn Mosby, um, you know, rose to fame. She was truly the darling of the anti-cop left when, uh, after the death of uh, Freddie Gray. Sergeant Betsy Smith, spokesperson for the National Police Association, speaking to these Mosby headlines seen across the country. Was put up there as as someone who was going to uh, clean up the Baltimore City Police Department. But also says the city's rank and file officers are taking notice. I'm sure that there are police officers in Baltimore who are uh, applauding uh, the conviction of Marilyn Mosby. But I've got to say that, you know what most cops are doing in Baltimore today? They're going out there, they're doing their jobs, they're risking their lives. And I think that they all probably have a lot of hope that they're going to have a better relationship with the prosecutor's office moving forward. Marilyn Mosby, from top prosecutor to convicted by a jury of her peers. A seismic rise and fall. I know the FOP called it karma. I think I would call it our justice system at work. And Marilyn Mosby still faces a second trial for allegedly making false statements on a loan application, but no trial date has been announced. Reporting live tonight, Amy Simpson, Fox 45 News. She's pure alligator, pure white. Two. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. One. Albino While out on a hike, a West Michigan man made a discovery that's one in 100,000. But it's a one in a million memory for him. Third at your sides, Riley Mack tells us all about it. Riley. Julia and Elena, on a business trip in Brighton, a man from Nuego was looking for a way to fill his time. But he never expected what, that what he saw next, he'll remember for a lifetime. Pure Michigan. I like the fresh air. Where creatures come in every shape and size. It's a chance to explore and kind of contemplate in your brain. And for Bob Meyer, avid hiker, <laughs> colors. I was looking for a, a nice trail to walk, kill some time. While venturing to a new spot, a spot of white ventured to him. But at first I thought it was a cat. It was the color that really drew it out. I was really excited. I was fumbling for my camera. I was trying to make sure that I had proof that I saw it. You hear about these videos of like albino deer and stuff halfway across the country. It's like, oh, okay, this stuff's real. <laughs> so real, it made much more than Bob smile. Seeing photos of these kind of mysteries tends to be the highlight of our days. A bright light for Rachel Leitner with the DNR. And you notice a stark white animal that's moving through the woods. They are pretty eye-catching. Just a few seconds of video for us. Albino squirrel. Years of a lifetime for him. It's definitely harder for it to stay alive. Because you notice them, most times predators will pick off those animals pretty easily. And that's actually why we don't see this genetic mutation present very often, is because those animals don't really survive to have reproduction. It's lucky to have made it this far, I think. Making Bob's discovery that much more squirrely. It, it feels almost maybe once in a white lifetime, hopefully more than that. Even though it's rare, it is possible. It'll find you or it won't. <laughs> Soon, pure Michigan will be blanketed in white. An uncomfortable time for many creatures. Unlike Bob's new friend, who will finally one unique little critter fit in. Riley Mack. Bino squirrel. 13 on your side.
the squirreliness of it all. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, November 11, 2023. So I have been told, uh, I think Lauren set me straight. I said I was confused because they have like a whole two week, might even be a whole month of events for Veterans Day uh, here throughout the Puget Sound area in Washington, I'm sure throughout the U.S. I think it is official today. She told us yesterday. So Veterans, the war of white supremacy racism. Salud, uh, Neely Fuller Jr., Korean War veteran, a uh, number of folks that we uh, see, even Jim Brown, who passed away. I'm going to have to double check that one to make sure, but I think he even might have been a uh, veteran as well. But lots of non white people uh, have put in their time and energy uh, in trying to solve this problem, and sometimes even just trying to get some skills that they could use to help black people. Anyways, uh, let's see. Uh, yep, Jim Brown, U.S. veteran. How about that? Anyway, he was in the Army uh, Reserve. Wacky, wacky. Anyway, um, let's see. The, oh, Albino Affairs. That's why I got sidetracked. Flipping Albino Affairs. I think this easily, we could have had three Albino Affairs this week. Easy. You heard the one segment. Oh, my goodness. An Albino squirrel. The entire state of Michigan has to pause. We have got an albino squirrel, even though they normally don't even survive and all the rest of it that, you know, we heard in the segment. Now, albino affairs number two. Some of us do not get all excited and how lucky and best time of life. Uh, This is from November 8. Today is November 11, 2023. Hunter jokes killing albino deer is white on white crime get shot down himself on X thread Georgia based hunter was lambasted on X after he posted a photo of himself posing with an albino deer he'd shot then joked that his kill was an instance of white on white crime the photo shows Jeremy Poole wearing a camouflage jacket and orange vest while holding the antler of a dead albino deer that appears to have blood around its mouth. Once in a lifetime, deer walked past me this morning, he wrote. The post has been viewed nearly 55,000 times according to X's metrics. People said he had a glimpse, Poole, excuse me, Poole said he had a glimpse of the rare deer on his camera over the past two or three years but on Tuesday morning he spotted the deer in person and shot it three minutes after legal shooting light likely referring to the law in some states that requires hunters to shoot only after sunrise albinism or the total lack of pigmentation is observed in only one in 30,000 deer according to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission albino deer generally have pure white fur along with a pink nose and pink eyes 
they're at a biological disadvantage according to zoologists because they stand out more easily to predators including humans I would say people want to kill an albino because of the rarity Rick Frowley a hunting education teacher told the Tennessean in 2013 they would consider it a trophy because of that in some states including Michigan Tennessee and Iowa hunting albino deer is illegal in 2021, Virginia's Patrick County made headlines after a sheriff announced that two albino deer had been illegally killed on the same day. Uh, teaspoon whites stag excuse me white stags are the subject of myths and cultures around the world, and some Native American groups consider them sacred. White Jesus Poole replied with sarcastic comments under many of his critics' posts. Thought people would let the white ones go when user asked I'm a criminal who replied I routinely conduct white on white crime uh, and I'll stop there it goes on to give a teaspoon more but number three for albino affairs all from this week uh, let's see this one I posted online uh, actually you can if you follow on Twitter and all that jazz uh, you should be able to nab it so they have a count I've heard of I guess they have specific towns where they have a population of albino critters uh, and this is like the mascot or you know the attraction for the town like hey we got these albino critters you gotta come look at them so this is from the hometown register White Squirrel Count offers facts on the status of Olney's iconic animal. The whites won out in ratio over the grays. Based on results of the 2023 Squirrel County in this city. The annual counting of the different squirrels is designed to keep tabs on the number of albino squirrels in the city famous for the pure white critters it is I think significant the number of times that the word pure p-u-r-e is used in these different segments where they are talking about some sort of albino deer reptile whale whatever it is pure white during three counting days in October volunteers spotted an average of 858 gray squirrels and 73 white squirrels that is an improvement from last year when spotters counted an average of 886 grays and 64 albinos they set the ratio of gray to albino squirrels at 11.75 to 1 this year stated only city clerk Kelsey Sturchy who coordinated the count with the help of 100 17 volunteers on the days of October 7, 14, and 21. The gray to albino ratio was 13.84 to 1 in 2022. The squirrel count also cited eight fox squirrels, the species Cerisus niger, also known as the eastern fox squirrel, the largest species of tree squirrels native to North America it can have a mix of colorings ranging from black tan to white as the above figures show only takes its squirrel count very seriously because the cute white animals with 
pink eyes are a tourist attraction to the city. By surfing the internet, you will find images of the only squirrels from travelers and references to how these little animals are an icon for the community. A great number of residents do not understand how important the white squirrels are to Olney. Many visitors come to Olney just for the purpose of seeing and photographing a white squirrel. These visitors stay in our motels, eat at our restaurants, buy our gas, and shop in our stores. Without a white squirrel population, these tourists will not have the same reasons to visit Olney and discover our other qualities. What are their other qualities, did they say? What do they have to offer other than pale rodents? Few people would have a desire to visit Olney to see a gray squirrel, nigger squirrels. Steshi commented in her report, and with more gray squirrels mating with albinos, the white squirrel population is at risk heading into the future. The Olney community is fortunate that the albino population of squirrels has held out so long. I will stop there. Three for. I was going to say, like, I don't. We might have some newer listeners or folks who've not heard. We've had the albino affairs segment for a long time on this program, uh, and Dr. Francis Cress Welsing took time out and explained because I played the segment from years back uh, about the albino reptile it was about a three four minute segment they had a zoologist white of course uh, come out and explain she said the same thing how rare it is oh my gosh they stick out and predators get them easy and oh man they have a tough time and they have vision problems and health problems and mutants and hard for them to find a mate because they look funny explained all of that Dr. Welsing found that so fascinating and so highly relevant to her theory of white genetic annihilation and in fact why white people would be so enraptured by these critters oh gotta take a picture and make the mascot and all the rest of it. now you even did hear the violence but even that white on white crime what what sound like he had been stalking him too like I've been seeing him for a while I was gonna get him I'm gonna get him put that boy put that up in the living room boy they go in got old snowflake the reindeer what does it mean to be white they had an amazing article in the National Geographic uh, last spring about albino redwoods we had talked about that before too and they said the same thing that they're basically the vampires of the forest they can't even exist on their own uh, because they don't have it's not melanin uh, it's the pigment of chlorophyll they don't have chlorophyll that functions the same way for plants to absorb the energy from the sun they can't do that so they have to leech and loot and steal from their melanated chlorophyll full brother trees and sister trees that are around them they have to mooch and steal from them the old albino thiefing redwoods we talked about them too that all of that I think they call them vampiric trees and how they exist wow all of that sounds 
so familiar, even the threat. No count nigger squirrels raping the pure, innocent white square. Now we got these old no count mulatto squirrel. Who wants to come to old me to see mulatto biracial squirrel? We don't want to see. Oh, get on out of here. Got Obama squirrel. Get out of here, man. Come on. And the volunteer. I can't. We've had a number of folks who've pointed out how difficult it is to get white people serious about replacing white supremacy with justice. You can get 117 people, presumably many of them white. Have to see if this is a racially restricted region. Olney, Ohio. Have to see. You can get 117 people to give up their weekend. We could be watching Buckeye football. Getting ready for the Bengals. Browns. Paying our respects to the late Jim Brown. All kinds of things. Apple cider, the pumpkin patch. Nah, we're going to go count rodents. Hope we got more pale ones this year. And give up the whole whoop, the whole month of Saturdays. You heard them? Can we devote half that time to helping Leroy get their readings going? Nah, nah, nah. Context of white supremacy, uh, compensatory call in the number 605-313-5164, decode 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Now, few things before we get started. One should be here on Wednesday, white guests only. Looking forward to it. Uh, talking about education uh, this coming Wednesday. Uh, we specifically have talked about education in Virginia before. I'm always reminded Virginia, Prince Edward County specifically, they closed schools for five years because they did not want nigger boys and nigger girls and children with white little folks. Closed public schools, opened up private schools, did this in a number, the school closing part that was kind of rare, but opening up private schools, they did that throughout the South. But that is a big part of the great state, the Commonwealth. State here talk about that all the time. They have uh, entire books written about this. They closed their schools. We've talked about this with a number of white guests before on the program, but revisiting education and racism with the great state of VA Wednesday. Check the social media, other pages for updates if we do programs before then I always post on X formerly Twitter Facebook our other uh, social media pages but definitely Wednesday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, invest if you think the cows is constructive listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com 
you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner and then directly beneath you'll see the links cash app PayPal Venmo enormous gratitude to all of the investors who have supported for 14 plus years hopefully we have been continue to be worthy of your time and energy you can always share the program if you think it is constructive we really do not have robust like cow supporters make sure we go out and share links and all that we really do not most of the time yeah I'm not they just take uh, for granted because we've been on the air so long and or they do not find it that constructive but our listeners generally are not the best at sharing our content that is one easy way does not take a whole lot of time and energy to share we generally are not name calling and talking bad about non-white people I see lots of that content get shared frequently much obliged to the folks who do share the content again hopefully worthy of your time and energy now speaking of time and energy economics according to Neely Fuller Jr. I would appreciate feedback Now, this one you can folks live and or if you listen to the archive man if I'm just you know a broke worthless Negro please let me know I went to the ATM machine University of Washington and I'm, it looks like all the other ATMs I'm expecting a typical experience things switched the minimum withdrawal amount one hundred dollars not the maximum the least you can withdraw is a hundred dollars I'd never seen that in my life I said wow I need to stop and rethink what I'm doing I do not need to be messing around and talking to you all about counter racism apparently the students at the University of Washington they are very financially secure as they matriculate and move through their studies so I really should be trying to find one of these young smart bright future as they say high GPA astutious non-white scholars and man what are you up to let's hang out kick it my goodness is that does that everywhere they have the least you can withdraw from the ATM is a hundred dollars is that common I'm just I'm ignorant because I have not I have not seen that anywhere else any other states jurisdictions that I've been to where the minimum amount you can withdraw is a hundred dollars I've not seen that any place else uh, in Washington State uh, that I've been I was absolutely flabbergasted but I didn't know this might just be you are a negra heck hey my ATM minimum amount you can withdraw is a thousand dollars I didn't know just let me know I am still learning thank you kindly uh, let's see next uh, the segment that we started with was about Alfred Kinsey we've talked about him a number of times throughout our history on the cows specifically I remember 2010 Judith Reisman Dr. Judith Reisman white woman she was a guest on the program uh, we talked about she her research is all about sex the history of sexual or how we have talked about taught sexual intercourse in the United States she talks quite a bit about Alfred Kinsey 
we spoke with Dr. Reisman specifically about the time period, as they said, his research at the University of Indiana. Bobby Knight just passed away, suspected racist basketball coach uh, that Kenzie, he was doing all of this. You know, I'm going to investigate what how people report their sexual activity and trying to change the way that we think about sexual activity and saying that people are much more uh, adventurous what's that kinky in their sexual activity than we originally thought and that there's much more so called homosexual activity going on than we originally thought and all of this really becoming a big deal 1950s 1960s in particular sexual revolution and gay rights and all of this in the 1960s we talked about this specifically and saying wait a minute like let's let's investigate this research who was being pulled what is the agenda with all of this why does this coincide so neatly at least uh, from a time perspective with the so-called civil rights movement at the time when you've got lots of black people even in the 1950s Montgomery bus boycott and all the rest of it Brown v. Board of Education you've got lots of black people getting serious we've got to get this problem solved we just dealt with that Hitler dude man racism is a big deal why at this moment oh yes yes and you know having sex with a horse and all the rest of it I even chose that clip specifically that's from the 2004 movie Kinsey now that is not a documentary fiction F word but it is about exactly uh, what they talked about that white fella Indiana University I think it's significant that they were saying this is important because now they're saying we're not going to give any public funds to the Kinsey Institute to continue all of this research and so University of Indiana they're trying to think of all these workarounds and make it separate so they can figure out a different way to fund uh, this project them being affiliated with the University of Indiana that gives this uh, what are they a veneer of that respectability academic credence you know this is not just us talking nonsense we studied we got our classes and we can go take the photo with all the books in the background we are scholars talking about this to influence behavior that would be another one where I would say hey reading researching Nonfiction is more important than watching television. Do some re- if you don't know who Alfred Kinsey is, do some researching. So many people talk about films and movies and saying, "Man, they're corrupting all the children and all this anti-sex and LGBTQ." Alfred Kinsey is an important name in all of that. Do some research on who is this guy, especially if you're in the Indiana area. Who is this guy? What's his research? How much millions of dollars of funding? Wow. Another research project. Speaking of children, directly after that, I played the segment talking about the AI technology that's easily accessible even for children, where they're using this to create fake nudes, fake pornography of other students, their classmates, as it were. Now, they didn't give racial classifications on all of this. I strongly suspect that these are people classified as white engaged in all of this behavior even as I was going to get this report saying I'm going to include this I do not have offspring I did read the Washington Post this week they also had a report they were talking specifically about teens 
being targeted on social media and they had all of these elaborate ruses where they would pretend to be uh, a female teenager and have a website set up with pictures and everything so it looks legit like oh okay this is Kate and you know she's in the 11th grade blah 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 and all this and then they'll be like oh let's swap you know send me some nude pictures and so you get these 16 year old boys they do it they send the picture and then they write back like bang this is not Kate send us $10,000 if you don't we're going to publicize all of your nude photographs and they were saying that this is uh, seems like there's a growing number of these cases I do not have offspring if you do one I think the report we played, uh, played previously wait as long as you can before giving your child a phone if you have to give them a phone we talked about you don't have to give them a smartphone calling texting that's really all you need and explain I keep saying hey it's no need to hide you have to talk to your children honestly about white supremacy racism you have to talk to your children honestly about sexual abuse because it's so rampant you have to talk to them honestly it's all connected this social media and the dangers show them these reports if I had a 12 year old 13 year old 14 year old I would show them these reports as soon as I find them I said that report uh, the white enforcement officer in the Commonwealth one more time went all the way from Virginia to California kidnapped a 15 year old who he had been doing the same thing getting on social media fooling her and oh yeah I'm a teenage boy blah 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 goes all the way across the continent kills her entire family burns the house down and kidnaps the girl now they got the girl back but I, if you want to say something I guess that's great he didn't kill her too but man I would show those reports if I had offspring boy or girl get that article from the Washington Post study that case in California whole family got killed and the house got burned down and she got kidnapped the fake news even that one they you didn't even do anything incorrect they just go and get pictures of where you were at a cookout or at the beach last summer and go get the old AI and whammo lots to talk to your children uh, about and particularly even that one I think Ari had told us before with that sort of thing they're snickering your friends and they come in hey man we look at this picture we did we got Ashley boom 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 you trafficking Iria told us if you post that sort of content on social media or something bang they could get you right there you're trafficking in child pornography and all the rest of it so talk to your children they're probably more dangerous than we're even aware of but I would be alert as you find as you see things speak to your children honestly so that it's not I'm just being a prude I don't want you to have fun no man this is I have to be careful I'm an old fogey I have to be careful they're looking to scam and rip me off and get all my data I have to be careful online I don't have offspring there might be a better way to explain all of that Uh, we heard a number of reports about uh, North Carolina specifically although much of what they talked about in terms of black people not having adequate housing 
uh, and not having adequate access to food, food deserts as they call them, very applicable uh, on a widespread basis. Now they were talking about Charlotte, North Carolina specifically on saying that you did have 1960, same time Alfred Kinsey doing all that research and they're doing the Woolworth sit-ins and such across North Carolina, North Carolina A&T and such. Uh, They said that you had mostly white subdivisions, houses, homeowners out there and so we get a Harris Teeter. Once they get subsidized housing, some non-white people, gray squirrels, start moving up, that, 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 that. The white people dip. The Harris Teeter does too. And is replaced by an inferior, grosser, poor quality produce and all of that. When they started uh, that segment and they spoke, I think it was uh, Maurice Black, privileged black male. And they were talking to him about, you know, where do you get your groceries and how do you go shop and everything? And he said, everything is fried. It doesn't look healthy. Everything is just fried and processed. And they said, well, what do you eat? He said, chips, candy, cookies. That is for sure. Why they sad what they call it the standard American diet, and I'm sure you flush that down with some high fructose corn syrup, McDonald's, maybe you get a few chicken nuggets here and there, french fry, you know that's your that is your privileged black male cheetos that's basically what he said, cheetos, chips ahoy, that's what I get. privilege and then the rest of the folks maybe they can get on the bus maybe they can walk and not be hit by a car I'm sure they got lots of crosswalks along with their wonderful grocery stores all of that call it by its prominence that's not an accident the white people moving I've never heard white flight with the grocery store but I mean dang even the grocery store gives them the deuces when the white people leave like nah 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 we're done. Get your get your Cheetos from over there, man. And then the housing component of it uh, as well. But none of this, I submit, white people are not ignorant about any of this. They said that uh, they had a professor from Harvard who had done studies on all of this, that they had data on this for years. They have what you call the research triangle in North Carolina. Isn't that what they say? Duke UNC, I forgot the other uh, school that's in the branch, Wake Forest, NC State, one of them, but they have lots of, you know, major world-class institutions there. They're not ignorant about, you know, the problem with the Negroes and they don't have a grocery store and all that. They're not ignorant about any of this. This is what we want. I was going to say Leroy, but since we got his name, Maurice Black, I thought it was even his name is actually Black. That's what we want, Negro, black, chips, Cheetos, cookies, can't even afford the Ozempic, but you right on the path for it, buddy. 
And then and then they'll sit around and, and wag a finger at you, say, see there, you just give your children junk food and don't feed them right. And why don't you feed them spinach and bok choy? Like, dang, we know the Harris Cedar dip, man, where are we going to get bok choy? Man, I'm lucky if I can get stale Cheetos. Come on. Let's see. They had the man right up there with the so-called food deserts, the loneliness. I included that. I literally just spoke to, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks back, not that long ago, this autumn. I'd said, I've been on my pock, the late great. Not really on speaking terms with very many folks, as it's reported was the case with he uh, back way back 1996, leading up to his demise, tragically. Uh, and some of the listeners heard that and they said, dang, cuz, I've been doing the same thing. <laughs> now, I certainly was not saying that as something to uh, promote or celebrate, uh, <laughs> minimize contact, but that is very sad. Uh, humans, I think we are supposed to be social. I don't think anybody, unless we got some test tube folks or what have you, I think the vast majority of people who have lived on the planet. Uh, they did not get here by themselves. Uh, they had parents and such generally need people to exist. Uh, most people, they have, you know, you need other folks to get by. Uh, I don't know too many newborns uh, who make it here successfully on their own. Uh, and in fact, it would seem since there are so many billions of people on the planet, maybe we were intended to be hanging out with other folks, at least from time to time, have a snack, chit chat about the weather, you see that skull in the Halloween bucket, you know, that sort of thing. They just reported that today on the BBC that they found a human skull in a Halloween bucket. That sort of thing. Good to check in, let folks know. Wow, found a whole skull. Crazy. So it would be better to have some constructive social contact. That's why I included Neely Fuller Jr. and what was even more wacky one I had just talked about all of this before I even heard that report then I had just posted Neely Fuller Jr. where he was a guest on our program talk giving his view on loneliness that that is natural unfortunate not the best but hey that is a part of being here I've even heard him give some of his film reviews where he says hey even some of the best movies they will have parts where they are a little boring because that is a part of life as is loneliness he connected the two on that snippet that you heard but I had literally just shared that and I had a number of folks who had talked about that because so many individuals once they get serious about studying racism white supremacy and especially once they get serious I'm not just gonna you know sit around here and name call black people quarrel verbally and joust with people classified as black victims of racism I'm not going to do that I'm going to be serious about this problem and even questioning white people once you get there oh man yes you might have more quiet time might not be as vital you're not trying to call Ben Crump names what you got the coon of the year what what that is better Mr. Fuller said that is better that having the non-constructive contact where we get together name call and argue and fight and you know all the rest of it but the loneliness not good for your health being isolated and such that's why I said try as best we can see if we can make constructive contact about 
health, healthy foods, making that carpool down the road so that we can get vittles so we don't have to eat Cheetos and chips, high fructose corn syrup all the time. Talk about healthier recipes, that sort of thing. Maybe buying in bulk. Maybe we can go to the co-op down the road. Someplace we can buy in bulk, get a lot of items so we can eat a little bit better. Even cook together, save some money. Loneliness is a big deal. We've talked about that many times uh, over the years. Uh, last thing I will get in. Uh, I think last week, one of our callers, she dialed in and told us to kind of be mindful about the Marilyn Mosby trial in Baltimore. Uh, and I don't know how long it was supposed to last, but all done. She's been convicted. They'll do the sentencing uh, later on. I just thought it was significant. I didn't include it in the report, but this very same week that you get the conviction of Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, just a little bit north, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, he is being investigated. The FBI sees, I think they said, like his cell phone and some other electronic devices to investigate if he knowingly, that was the word that they used, knowingly violated uh, campaign finance regulations uh, by receiving or somehow coordinating with so-called Turkish nationals uh, to receive resources of some kind and uh, did he offer them anything in return for all of this that's what's being investigated uh, currently he's vehemently denied any wrongdoing but to have all of that happening uh, at the same time wow reminded me even of schadenfreude we talked about this uh, the mayor, former mayor uh, down in New Orleans, Ray Nagin, black male uh, during Katrina. He was even reelected afterwards where there was so much glee uh, and that even Kwame Kilpatrick up in Michigan where they had the albino squirrel. Uh, same thing uh, when he was indicted uh, for his activities, criminal activities in uh, Detroit. It, there was so much glee. I remember they got an airplane to fly the message don't drop the soap right when I think the day that he was scheduled to be taken into uh, custody and I mean with all of the white people who are arrested for all kinds of criminal activity sexually abusing children and all the rest of it I generally don't see that sort of joy uh, euphoria <laughs> from and particular public officials and such like dang that's sad all the way around somebody having to be you know arrested and all the rest of it I don't know why that would be something to uh, glee and take joy in but I have seen that a few times uh, hopefully uh, air at a uh, mayor Adams will uh, be vindicated and you know all the rest of it but kind of keep an eye on that uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, we've had these kind of situations before where they'll have elected black officials and it'll seem like it might be a rash where a number of folks that are in office get accused, convicted, kind of all at the same time. Um, system of racism, white supremacy, do not be surprised. And I guess that would be another reminder if you're in August, uh, if you are in office of some sort, man, whatever you do, white people will be watching. Don't think. Uh, that, you know, you'll be able to pull something and do this, do that. And nobody's looking like, oh, no, even if you didn't do something, we will be looking to find a way to make some sort of charge accusation. Uh, so don't think that, you know, we'll be able to get away with the same sort of things that someone white would be able to do in office. That's it, especially around COVID-19. Like, man, oh, man, 
Anyway, uh, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see, uh, folks who have comments, uh, if we have any folks who've spotted an albino uh, critter, you can let us know that one as well since we did our uh, triple up today. Oh, whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, let's see, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. May I be heard? That would be Lauren. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, good evening, and I'm sorry if I'm coughing a little bit this evening. I don't, you know, feel that great. Um, about the segments that you played, Gus, um, Kenzie, he was being discussed right at the beginning. I, I did hear that program. That was, was kind of an old one with Judith Reisman. And uh, didn't Kenzie, I, I think he was, like, actually corresponding with a white man who was having sex with children, I think even children in his own family, and he corresponded with him for years, knowing that he was doing things that were illegal. Um, I just thought about that. Um, the deep fakes about the nude pictures of high school girls, you kind of um, talked about that, but I think, well, I'm not really sure, like, the law, but if you say you have a a picture of a 15 or a 16-year-old naked person on your phone, right? You're 15 or 16, and a 15 or 16-year-old sent you this picture, right? I think you just having that is you being in possession of child pornography, um, if I'm not mistaken. And then especially if you send it to someone else, that's, uh, you know, that's something else, and that, that might be a crime. And, um, wow, I was just thinking, what if, you know, you have someone that you know who lives in another state and you send that electronically across state lines, I'm sure white people could come up with all sorts of charges for that. Um, the camp director, that, that summer camp, Canna Cook, um, with the uh, employees, you know, molesting children, that's an unfortunate name. Um, loneliness, man, you know, yeah, I think lots of us are lonely. And it doesn't mean, you know, you never, you know, talk to anyone or see anyone. But, if you know, if you're not able to talk about things that are important to you, and for me that's racism, you know. I There's lots of people I talk to, but I really, you know, if I talk about racism, you know, they want me to shut up. So, you know, that's, that's uh, a bummer. It's hard to deal with. Um let me see. I'm sorry. I didn't. I should have done a better job on my notes today. Um, in North Carolina, when they were talking about the food desert and um, <clears throat> the connection between what we eat and how we prosper, prosper these sorts of things, it was a white woman talking. Sounded like a white woman. I don't know. Um, but she was acting like this council um, needed to collect information, and the information collected suggested that people don't have access to food. Hey, Amen. You don't need to do any more studies to figure that out. Like, I get it, you know, 
um, white people have wonderful access to healthy food and we do not. Like, I don't think we need any more studies. Just, you know, maybe help us get some healthier food instead of saying you're going to do um, another study. The, the lady in Charlotte, North Carolina, she was, you know, just talking about how hard it is to buy a house. Man, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's really a lot. Trying to buy a house is just super stressful. It, makes, it just makes things hard. Um, um, you know, there was a couple of things that I saw in, in the newspaper that weren't talked about. It was um, in the New York Times, there was an article about um, U.S. troops who fired large numbers of artillery rounds, and they, they had developed mental and physical problems just like the repeated blast exposure from firing these, you know, cannons, mortars, shoulder-fired rockets, things like that. They're saying it can cause irreparable injury to the brain. It's like, um, you know, it sounded kind of like the uh, CTE that is described in football players. And the article even talked about taking hits in football. And um, a lot of times the non-white people who are in the service, in the military, they don't, um, they get dishonorably discharged um, one way or another, and then they don't even have health care to deal with these problems and they, that they got from, you know, going to Syria or wherever around the world to shoot rockets at other non-white people, and they have all these problems. They can't think straight. They're hallucinating, and now they can't pay their bills or take care of their children, and, you know, no one seems to care. Um, Joseph Emerson, goodness, he's there's so many articles. Well, actually, not that many articles about him, I guess, but I guess I've been thinking about it a lot. There was another article about him. This is the, the white man who gets on the horizon, Alaska flight, and tries to shut down the engines um, by starving them of fuel. Anyway, the latest article that I read about him, it said, you know, after he tries to shut down the engines, he leaves out, he, you know, he tells the flight attendants, you know, to cuff him or there's going to be a problem. So they put the, the zip ties on his hands, but they put him in front, okay? This guy, you know, tries to open the emergency door, <coughs> excuse me, while, while the plane is in flight. He proceeds to, you know, pick up a hot coffee and chug it directly from the container, um, you know, all this while he's on the plane. And then when he gets off the plane and the police put him in one of those uh, detention rooms, he takes off his clothes, so now he's naked. He urinates on himself and then... I'm trying to think of exactly how the newspaper worded it, but I think they said he tried to get himself to ejaculate. That's a really long way to say masturbate. They did all this in the in the detention room at the airport, and I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And, and the article, it was written in such a manner as just to make the reader feel sorry for him. So I thought that was super interesting. Oh, and the squirrels. I, the lady, when the white lady was talking about the squirrel, she actually said, um, you know, genetic mutation, um, you know, it doesn't happen very often, and they don't survive long enough to reproduce. I just, <laughs> white people talk about albino animals or, and that they seem to not, you know, scientifically, they'll look at the albino animals, and these are people who lack skin coloration, but they never consider 
themselves. Well, they don't say, I don't know what they're thinking, but they don't say that they have albinoid characteristics. Um, so I always find it interesting to, to read those articles about albino animals because the way white people deal with them really shows what it is that they're thinking about themselves, and that's all I have now. Much obliged, Lauren. Um, hopefully you are feeling much better uh, promptly. Drink lots of fluids. Get lots of rest. Uh, avoid people who name call you, maybe. Um, she said, we, we talked about old uh, Mike Swango in the book club. Man, they said Mike Swango, even once he was a convicted felon. Oh, excuse me. No, no, I'm sorry. He was an accused felon facing charges for felony battery poisoning his coworkers. Even then, trial in the horizon, they said it was speedy and easy for him to get hired in a hospital, no less, not just like making chicken nuggets, but speedy and easy hiring process. Uh, have you found it speedy and easy to try to buy a house as a Negro who may or may not be a felony poisoner? Lauren? Things have been pretty difficult, sir. <laughs> Much obliged. Well, see, you might be a Negro poisoner, so it's supposed to be difficult for you. We don't know. You could be old Swango undercover. Man, I fell out out there by other folks. That segment where Neely Fuller Jr. talks about being lonely. He connects lonely and boredom, which totally logical. He said, you sit around being bored or lonely or both. And then you get bored and dump extra sugar in somebody's coffee and crack up about that. I said, dang, haven't we been talking about that? People slipping something in your drink at work and then everything goes from there. They do have smart water bottles, less than 20 bucks. Fingerprint locks it, bam. You don't have to worry about people getting bored at work and they dump extra sugar in your tea. You go to the restroom or whatever else, lock it down. Anywho, uh, they do not need any extra side or studies to figure out the niggers do not have access to lima beans or Brussels sprouts. They already know this. This is what they want. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, lines should be open. Proceed. Hello, may I be heard? Uh, aforementioned Irie. Yes, ma'am. All right, greetings. Um, on the junk food that you just mentioned, um, I forgot it was Veterans Day. Y'all know it's a shame, isn't it? But I don't really, you know, adhere to military themed things anyway. But out of curiosity, I was with someone uh, this morning, and he wanted coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, and so did I. And so since it was Veterans Day, I said, hey, may I get my coffee free since it's Veterans Day? And the young lady said, no, but we'll give you a free donut. And I'm like, I don't want your donut. <laughs> I do not want your cheaply made donut, you know what I'm saying, plus sugar and all that, even if it's cheaply made, but I just paid attention to how, you know, the junk is, was on, you know, being given today in some places. 
moving on. So I would say to Lauren, if you can try to find BGQ from me, if you could try to find a real estate investor and ask them about unconventional ways to get into a house, um, such as there's a one technique or whatever called subject to, normally it's done to make a profit, not even like not even a big margin of a profit, but it's something that I know it's an unconventional way to get into a property, subject to. I know most of the time it's done through a corporate structure, but I'm just saying look into it, maybe see if you can find some real estate investors to think of some unconventional ways to get a house because I watched a video. It's this Chinese guy that talked about um, what's going on with the SEC, um, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, um, uh, all them people, all the white people that make decisions about the money, printing money, valuation, all that. He said right now they're not, they lowered the interest rate, which is not because by 2025, he's speculating, long story short, there's going to be a hyperinflation that really devalues the dollar so much so like it's going to really, metaphor, lock out a lot of people from home buying and other situations. So in my mind, if what he's saying is true, you definitely want to get into a property before 2025, and the only way I can suggest is try to get with somebody that does some different techniques for real estate investment. Try to get a duplex so you can rent out the other side and get that money back on the mortgage, you know, so that way you get the taxes taken care of. So I'm going to go up to. Um, this is something else. You mentioned AI with the breasts. Um, they're doing a lot of that with the cartoons, like it's it's gross. Um, someone showed me a picture of Stitch from Lilo and Stitch and Pornograph, if that's a word. And I'm like, who does this, white men? There was a white guy reported to the library. He was looking at I consider child porn, which was cartoon-derived pornography of children, it looked like children and, and characters from shows at the library, live at five. And I just was out, outdone. But going to AI, I'm really concerned right now for me career-wise as a graphic designer. I think that Adobe has been data mining my work and other people's work for how however long they've been doing this creative cloud thing, and now they're really pushing designers to let the AI do the work for them. If I don't want you. I don't want the AI to do the work for me. I want to come in here and do it myself. But they keep updating it, and it's almost like, well, you know we can just do that. Like, just tell us what you want to make, and we're going to we'll do it for you. So if anybody is in the art world, I know one person in the art world, but if anybody else has any recommendations about like better or equivalent software applications I could use that doesn't have AI integration, that would be great. Um, and then the last thing I want to share, I had a complete shot, which made me think a part of my code needs to be not just in sexual relationships but any relationships to ask certain questions before I began because there was a person I had to let go of 
that I was considering a friend because of a special situation. And then I've been volunteering with an organization for a long time, and then I became basically a hired personnel, and there was some disagreement about what a workplace is, workplace ethics. I was harassed on the job, long story short. I said a statement like, hey, I may be working here, but I'm also here to replace the system of white supremacy with justice, and the program director said, I'm not here for that. But they have black and every words in the name, and I, I was just dumbfounded. I'm like, oh, okay, so I need to ask, like, a whole bunch of questions, just like I would if I was um, considering a sex partner or something. I don't know if that's right, but a partner. I'm sorry. I'm just from the book with the twin, twin questions. But I was just amazed because the person also said, I'm just here to uplift black people's mindset. And I'm like, okay, that's the case for you lifting from. I didn't get to ask, ask, ask the question. And I also wasn't acknowledged about this situation becoming a workplace. And I'm like, okay, like I'm going to have to leave after I get my check. And I just want to share that, like, if you're on a more individual basis with someone, a group or whatever, you got to just ask a whole lot of questions before you get started. But that's all I want to share, and I hope everybody's doing well. Take care. Much obliged, Irie. Um, wow, that. Uh, hmm. Ask more questions. I guess Neely Fuller Jr. talks about that all the time. Whether it's uh, some sort of sexual partnership uh, or just friends, really. Uh, ask more questions uh, so that uh, you, everyone, can be uh, more informed uh, about what's what's going on, and even. What's your purpose for living? Maybe that's one we should all put. What's your purpose for living? What's your purpose for having this company? What's your purpose for, you know, this week, this month? What's your objective for publishing this book? Just asking to, you know, see what it is. Uh, One thing that I would say, unfortunately, most non-white people, victims of white supremacy, most of us, we are not attempting to replace white supremacy with justice at all I've had cows listeners who write in that's like the first thing that they said brother Gus love the program lots of fun I am not trying to replace white supremacy with justice I'm trying to whatever uplift the minds of black people or you know whatever else that they're trying to do victims guaranteed qualified but that is very common to the point I would say it it should be stunning if someone says yes that's my objective to replace white supremacy with justice or that's even halfway related to you know my thought process even people that have heard Neely Fuller Jr. that is generally not the case people who talk about racism generally are not white and non-white people who talk about racism are generally not seriously about ending the problem of white supremacy racism and one of the easy ways you get this is most of the time they don't even have a definition for racism that lets you know the lack of seriousness in all of this but yeah that's uh man I, in fact I wouldn't 
I probably would recommend not even telling people if it's a workplace setting that, hey, yes, I, my, my mission or objective, even if it's all black people, I wouldn't even say that to them. I would expect some sort of what? Ripley? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I would expect how many you talk about lonely. Woo. I think Lauren, she had just said that, like, man, replacement. You have to eat by yourself. I thought you were cool. Incidentally, uplifting the minds of black people. That right there would be another one where I process that as we are not serious about solving this problem. That's why we have no metaphors on the context of white supremacy. If that's the goal, what does that even mean? Uplift the minds of black people. Hmm. Uplift my mind. Hmm. What happens when I get my mind uplifted? Like as all whatever that means, like we have a lot. That's generally what it'll be. If you listen to individuals classified as black, non-white people in general, really, a lot of times it'll just be a lot of rhetoric, slogans, jargon that doesn't really explain in detail. The brain science convention is this week. That is very detailed. Uplift the mind. I don't think they're going to have the uplift the mind of negras conference at the brain science convention i could be wrong number again 605-313-5164 b code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, thoughts to share, proceed. Hello. Black female caller. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Hello. Um, hold on. Let me get my timer. Sorry. Any minute now. Oh, well. Machine. Um, hopefully everyone's having the best evening they can have. Thank you for taking my call. Um, a couple of things. I don't want to talk about everything because you don't have five minutes. Um, the loneliness, your gut is very important. Um, I think I expressed earlier, I had a death. Um, and I've been fortunate because I could be really lonely, but a lot of people have been reaching out and being supportive and, you know, so that does help. And, you know, if you have to ask for help or whatever, unfortunately, fortunately, I haven't had to do that. But people can be really generous, I guess, depending on the situation. And so people have been very generous at their time and even money. And I was like, wow, um, I didn't want to find out this way that this is the way people are. But, you know, I was fortunate to find out positive things um, through the tragedy. Um, in terms of the food in the desert, again, something else we've been talking about forever and ever is everywhere. I can say where I live. Um, probably even if I look at this city in the quadrants, there may be 
maybe one supermarket downtown, one Walmart, I guess, East, some other store, maybe. I said maybe, I don't recall. Um, a Walmart, one store south, a Walmart in the supermarket, I guess, west, and where I live, kind of in the north, northwest. There are six supermarkets. So one of those is the Fresh Market, which is like, you know, Whole Foods, but Fresh Market. Um, so, yeah, that in one of them, when I moved here, there were seven. One moved, I guess, west, but still, that's supposed to be, I guess, a better area that stores the public. And public. I don't know where every public is because I haven't been all over but I don't, I don't think public supermarkets are known to be under in quote unquote low income or underserved neighborhoods. Someone who's more familiar with public, you can let me know. But as far as I know, the public that I have been, you know, been to, they've been in quote unquote, I guess, better neighborhoods. Um, so yeah, that does continue to happen. Um, yeah, those are the main things I kind of want to because we seem like we keep talking about certain things over and over again. So we, I guess, have to come up with better methods. I know, um, one older lady that I go to, um, church with, she has a big garden. So she's at least for, and I'm not just for herself. She will share the, she will bring some of the fruits and, well, more vegetables to church and she will share what she has you know, with those who come. So, yes, that's her. And I get, and I was talking to my uncle, um, and we were talking, he had a bad experience at the doctor, and I was telling him, you know, I would go with my mom to the doctor, and I was like, that's one of probably the easiest ways to fight white supremacy, if you can, is go to the doctor with somebody so people don't talk over them and try to give them improper care. You can be like a level-headed person to kind of hear things clearly, whether they get good news or bad news, and kind of help them process in that moment what what was said to them. So if that's possible, and I'm thinking about possibly, because when I start my job, I'll be working in the evening. Maybe, hopefully, I can, you know, not take anyone, but, you know, once in a while, try to help people and, to, you know, sit with them at the doctor to make sure something you know, people don't talk over their head. So hopefully I'll be able to do that. I don't know, but that's been on my heart to do. Thank you. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, that is one. I'm so uh, proud. Can you say that? Yes, I'll say it for right now. Uh, we, that's a suggestion that we have been repeating for almost 15 years. Uh, Vernelia Randall, she was with us way back in 2009 in her book, Dying While Black, where she talks about uh, racism and health care. She says that is one of the simplest things to do. You don't have to have a Ph.D. from Harvard in health care or biology or anything else. Just you're awake. Look. Ask questions courteously. Same thing that we talk about on this broadcast. That's it. You don't have to have a gun, nunchucks, nothing. What are you doing there, Dr. Swango? Why do you need me to leave, Dr. Swango? I'm just here to support. 
Is it going to be a problem if I stay? I mean, I'm really concerned. Why you? What, what's in that syringe? Just asking questions. Battling, like we said, your presence alone could be enough to deter. Like, oh man, I don't know if I want to poison her. Wow, man, got this nosy aunt here. I don't know. And doctor, or excuse me, Vernelia Randall. She's not a doctor, but she told us when she gave that suggestion that she has done this just asking questions and that got better care for her relative person that she was concerned about victim of racism so absolutely and in particular with an aging population man there will be many more opportunities as you have because they are vulnerable I guess from this past Wednesday Dr. Kaplan joined us live from Australia he pointed that out he said hey you have a lot of white doctor or white healthcare workers and such more than we think who are up to no good you got a vulnerable population of folks who are old to oh well you know was already 70 and having health problems so eh, you know we expect them to kick the bucket metaphor any day where people don't ask a lot of questions they don't do a serious autopsy about it eh. just be there Ah, such a big one for Neil Randall and then through and through all the way to Michael Swango. Uh, also, the the Walmart for the food option, that's such a, an enormous problem and has such immediate real world consequences, because if you are eating poorly, that's immediately going to show up, you know, your skin, how you feel, your weight, health. I mean, so many uh, different ways uh, that's. <laughs> hey, we talked about having constructive contact. That could be one. We don't have to do a whole lot of talking. Or like I said, we just talk about food. We don't have to talk about politics and cursing out Obama or Biden or whatever else. Mad about Marilyn Mosby. We can just talk about food or nothing. But carpool, local grocery store, get there, whatever you need. It's going to be better. Co-op, that is a good one. Uh, they have the outlet sometimes where you can get uh, bulk items maybe go in as a group divvy it up that way that way you don't have waste to or if it's just you and you don't end up with you know gallons and gallons and pounds of stuff when it's just going to be one person see if you can do those types of things so that you can get uh better quality food items uh better prices stay away from like the convenience stores because that's what they load us up with that's how they end up with a lot of chips even if you was just eating chips and cookies and soda if you're going to the like local convenience store, what have you, like you're going to pay way more for really bad food. Like you could at minimum save a few nickels on your, you know, poison edibles uh, by going to a better quality uh, store. See if you can carpool, save on some gas and get better food. I was thinking for Publix. I don't I guess I lived in Atlanta, right? Briefly. There was I don't know if it's still there. There was a Publix on Westlake if I remember correctly that was like walking distance from Morehouse I don't know I guess that's does that qualify as a good neighborhood like I don't know people that in the Atlanta area I'm trying, I didn't I didn't think of that as a, a good neighborhood I'm trying to think of where the publics were and no, I didn't think of it as a... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I went to Clark Land and they all together. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, okay. It wasn't there when I went 
it wasn't there when I went in the old millennium. There was an A and P that we could walk to. So I don't know where the Publix came in. I know they used to um, have a no with something, and they used to take us. The bus would take us to like this other restaurant, other supermarket. I maybe I don't remember being a Publix, but again, that was a long time ago. But I know they've changed the environment since then. They've gotten because when the Olympics came, they I think they got rid of the um what we'll call the project areas and things like that. So things may have changed. I know I haven't been down there, well up there from <laughs> here in a long, long time. But when I was going to school, it was not considered the best area, and there was no Publix there. And again, that was like 25, long time ago, years ago. I see, I see. The Olympics did drastically change uh, Atlanta. Uh, Techwood homes, I think, got destroyed. Lots of poor black people lived there. Um, I know other side of the Millennium and the Olympics, uh, there was a Publix. Was that, I'm trying to think if that was MLK. Is that MLK? It might have been MLK. Uh, but yeah, I didn't think of it as a quote unquote good neighborhood. Um, but there was a Publix, uh, right there, like walking, you could literally, you could walk from Morehouse and bang, be right at the, uh, Publix. Uh, and there were other Publix. Now I'm thinking the other Publix that I can think of immediately, they're both in Buckhead. I did think of Buckhead. I think most people think of Buckhead as a kind of ritzy <laughs> area, even though there's still a lot of black people there, but still that's. Yeah. Anyway, um, fascinating. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I have to see now. I'm curious to see how long that Publix has been there. Like, was that a brand new store that they put up? Was that something they've been trying to get for a long time type of thing. Anywho, uh, we'll be here on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White guests talking about education, even see if the four-day school week, if that is a thing uh, in their part of the woods, uh, what they think about that uh, kind of moving forward uh, in this area of the world where it seems like that might be catching on in more uh, jurisdictions. Uh, but that'll be Wednesday. Uh, again, check X, Facebook, other social media sites to see uh, other programs prior to this coming Wednesday. I think that's the 15th. I did want to say quickly as well, we our guest that was here Wednesday, uh, Dr. Robert Kaplan, white man, joined us from Australia. We talked about the so-called indigenous population. If I had massive time difference, 17 hour time difference, if I had realized that a little quicker I would have had like two extra questions uh, just to discuss racism in Australia specifically but I asked him about the because he knew he said he was writing a report about Timothy McVeigh and he said uh, I asked him about the violence that they were projecting for this part of the world and doing polls and saying that more US citizens support violence because they don't agree with the way that the country is being operated currently by white people and I said, do you think if the indigenous population in Australia, if they had that same mindset, they're upset about how they've been mistreated and what's happening now, do you think white people in Australia would tolerate it? And I called them deliberately the indigenous population. 
he said we called them the aborigines I know that I don't use that term deliberately we had Dr. Ann Patel Gray as a guest on the program she was here now she just said you know since I'm talking to you I'm just a black person which that's right in line with Neely Fuller Jr. Non-white people, black people, right on. And they have whole, like, the same thing in Australia. They have, like, Nigger Valley and Nigger really, Nigger River, Nigger Valley, Nigger Mountain, that type of thing, all in Australia. You can see it on the maps uh, and such. They have news reports about all this. We talked about this with Dr. Ann Patel Gray, live from Australia some years back. But she said in Australia, I would not allow a white person to call me black I would deem that an act of racism but we talked about that and in my opinion that ab when they put that prefix down ab like in abnormal that normally means not normal so when I process aboriginal I think that's man that's old racist woman racist man master deceiver like on the sly calling you not original like nah man nah man that's the indigenous population but I did think that that was significant from this past what was that Tuesday Wednesday Tuesday uh, with Dr. Robert Kaplan who was very informed about white supremacy racism from a global perspective Wow, white people are not ignorant. That's one. If I get one more, then I'll double check, see if other folks have commentary. In our 15 years, we have done lots of programs talking to white people from all over the world. We've had a number of white people talk to us from Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Canada, Spain, Israel on and on and on we have had white people talk to from all of these different locations on the planet you see so many of the same patterns similarities and even their knowledge global understanding of how this system in fact Dr. Kaplan he knew intimately about Dr. Nikki Falkoff's work She's in South Africa. They're not ignorant. That also, that should be thought. I know many folks, you know, Gus T doesn't know what he's talking about and what he thinks about what it means to be white. I don't know how many of you all have talked to white people in different parts of the world. We have a 15-year archived history of talking to white people from all over the world. There are a lot of similarities that also should stand out as strange, peculiar, suspicious. Pick a term. Wales, we had all those white people from Wales this summer. Like, pick a location, really. Anywho, the number 605-313-5164, the code 564. Four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate give folks like five see if they have other commentary Macedonia I had to look on the map to even find where that is what in the world who lives in Macedonia anywho let's see other folks uh, have commentary they would like to share 
Hey, guys. I think that is Lauren. Yes, ma'am. It is uh, me. I just, it didn't seem like anyone else was going to say anything. I just wanted to say, um, there was that part where the black male got shot four times by a law enforcement officer. And afterwards, he said he still wants to go to the NFL. I thought that was um, super sad. Not that he wants to play football, although that could be uh, deleterious to his health, just that he didn't have any other um, constructive goals. And also, I heard this thing on NPR. It's kind of an old report. It was from, like, May, the one-year anniversary of the top shooting. But it was about, (coughs) excuse me, some cheerleaders in the Buffalo area. And it was called Buffalo All-Star Extreme. I thought it was really interesting, and I just wanted to tell you guys about that. That's it. Buffalo All-Star Extreme. Was that about the, it was about the cheerleading squad, this report? Yes, sir. It was about, like, a cheerleading gym that they have. And, you know, it was just really interesting to listen to it. And it was, like, three segments. And it was, you know, younger children, you know, young girls, teenagers, um, and girls who gotten a little older and then started working at the cheerleading gym. I thought it was constructive just to hear what young people thought about this shooting, how it had affected them. And I also, I have a schoolmate, um, you know, we still talk, and she has daughters that are around this age that participate in competitive cheer. Um, I shared this with her. She doesn't usually like to talk to me about racism. And I shared this with her, and she listened to it with her daughter. So, you know, I thought it would be maybe something that you could listen to with children in order to talk to them about racism. And you know what? Even your 40-year-old friends who act like um, racism isn't a problem, and they'll just uh, pray it away. My friends associate. Love it. Love it. Love it. <sighs> Racism avoidance disorder. Uh, lots of different terms uh, to describe non-white people, victims of white supremacy. We are very reluctant, resistant to talking honestly about white supremacy racism, which gets back to when Irie said, hey, she says, hey, I'm, I'm about replacing white supremacy with justice. Whoa, 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 I'm not about that at all. <laughs> hey, man, what, oof. <laughs> that sounds repulsive. Oof, oof. That, is, that is the result of terrorism and confusion. But yes, always great to share those sort of reports. That even uh, reminded me, I think, some of the victims in Buffalo said that they thought there was more sympathy from some of the local schools and such for DeMar Hamlin, privileged black male. Uh, and Hey, that's where uh con green. This is the black male who was shot four time privileged black male. Uh, and he said he was to avoid depression. He gets back out on the football field, even though he's still in pain. privilege I bet everybody knew his name though Con Green they had t-shirts hashtags and all that they got caps mittens with Con Green on it right shot four times that is kind of depressing like dang I've been shot four times 
my goal is more brain damage. Black male privilege shuffle. I don't know. Should you be allowed to play? Like, man, you're still growing. Your brain computer isn't even developed yet. Like, you've been shot. You could have died. Like, what? Ugh. 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 And then you have to beg that they that they charge the officer and all of this. Like, oh, my God. Black male privilege. And I think this was trying to break up an altercation. I've seen that before, too, though, where if something breaks out and you could be the total so-called hero in all of this and oh, bang, they come and target the privileged. And then that's the one where he got taunted. Where they sent the messages, the, the white officer sent the message after he shot uh, Con Green. You deserved it, effing niggers. Bragged about Oh, they used my word too, didn't they? Bragged about it. Fuller did say that. Practice racism, white supremacy, and brag about doing so. Uh, Norm Stamper said that too. White officer, he was on the program, former chief of police in Seattle. He wrote uh, in his book, breaking rank in addition to them being afraid of big black males he said that they would brag about exactly that i got to put him in a chokehold like elijah mcclain you know you did it oh he was gonna reach for you he bragged about he said that they would do that he said they would come in and celebrate like it was a football game they would come in and how you see how i choked him out i put my bicep on his esophagus ah you see how i got or I shot pan. You see how I got him, boy. I dropped him, man. I've been down at the range, man, and boom, that's a raise right there. High five, high five. On the back side, white hand side, white hand side. Black male privilege. Other folks who dialed in, uh, commentary to share. Proceed. Yeah, have you heard? A caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Uh, yes, sir. Gus, I was thinking about that, that audio as well, about the text messages and how uh, how racist and hostile it sounded. Um, and I think I've seen a report. I think that's the San Jose area where I seen a, a lot of the redaction where it was like, I guess the other person, the, uh, the white supremacist was texting. They definitely didn't want to, um, I guess reveal that person's name. I'm not sure if that person got suspended or he's still working on the force. Um, and I was thinking about the, the thing about patterns and how, They'll protect the uh, the officers, uh, you know, someone to that effect as practicing racism, and they. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to say snitch or whatever. Like they won't snitch on uh, you know another white person. And I thought about that that segment where they were at the the playoff game, and that probably was a black male, I think, or a victim that said that there were uh, young people or teenagers coming off of the field crying, I guess, because they were being taunted, racism being practiced, 
uh, being called racial slurs. And once again, that pattern where the person doing the report will say, well, you know, we tried to reach out and get a word from the coach of the other team, I guess the people or whatnot, or the students that were doing these racist taunts. And we just couldn't get a word back. And that's another one of them patterns too. And it's just, it's, uh, I'm thinking about that Voltron metaphor, I guess, uh, but they still collaborate, they connect, and they practice racism in different ways to support the system of white supremacy. Uh, and other than that, there was a few weeks ago, there was a, a news report where there was a black reporter. I think it was on ABC News where they, I think they were just getting the, I forgot what the uh, position is, where I, I guess it's for the the majority or something like that for the Republicans. I can't exactly remember the position of the person's name. I guess he's out of Louisiana. And it was a white woman that was uh, practicing racism, saying, oh, you already asked, you already asked the question, you know, go away, just shut up, like, you already asked their question, go away. And then when the segment went away, the I think her name Robin Roberts, she said, oh, well, you know, don't worry, Rachel, you had every right to ask your question. So um, that white woman definitely was there uh, protecting whoever that person was, the white man. And other than that, that's all I have to say. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Asking questions, the power of asking questions, so important. Like, shoot, shoot, get on. That's even that, because if it's, she has her press pass and what have you, and, you know, they vet it, okay, you're supposed to be here. Like, that's, I don't know, that's unusual. Like, I've seen people ask the president, like, several questions, tough questions sometimes, and they don't, get on out. They don't do that then. I've seen where they'll get, riled up or whatever sometimes they just ask another question like dang that's uh all righty ask it asking questions super important that fella's name uh the white officer i hate black people and the text messages and all of that uh his name is mark mcnamara mc n a m a r a mark mcnamara the uh cbs Bay Area News reports that he is no longer employed with the San Jose Police Department. White people don't get fired. They get transferred. That was the segment where they talked about, hey, we got to make sure that he gets deregulated so that he can't just pick up and go get a job in Santa Barbara or San Leandro or Oakland or wherever else, which is very common. They have whole reports and probably dissertations and books about that, too. Uh, Tamir Rice the white officer who shot him, he had already been fired by a different Ohio enforcement agency. Very common. Oh man, and he got hired again by a different enforcement agency and then they fired him once the public 
found out about all of this, which is exactly what we are reading in the book club. Same thing with doctors saying, in fact, man, I said that about 50 times on Thursday. No snitching. You got a white doctor who is accused of poisoning his white paramedic co-workers. Felony battery. The Ohio State University. Go Buckeyes. Med school. White officials. Hey. We need to investigate. This guy was in our residency program. Neurosurgeon. No less. Hey. We need to get right. Let's go ahead and uh, investigate. Where did we drop the ball? Metaphor. What did we do wrong? How did we allow this guy to get through and not do more? How did he get going recommendations from us? And no snitching. They even police come to investigate and get out of here. Can we get the fight? And can we get the notes? And this guy was trying to kill people. And we not do it. Zip have whole meetings and codify all of this get suspicious of other white people are you leaking are you talking are you off code what are you doing no snitching I said that with Dr. Kaplan our white guest on Wednesday I said man white people don't really punish white people for practicing racism sometimes it seems white people don't punish white people for anything that's how you got that camp scandal insurance company comes in uh, shh, zip it they were molesting kids whoa 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 because they were molesting kids what do you get to say <clears throat> white people do not care about children that is such a beautiful illustration too because the insurance companies the sound clip that I played where they say from spotlight it takes a village to abuse children there you go white people are not ignorant not by a long shot incidentally I was very frustrated this week getting my swagger back from not feeling my best think Lauren said she was under the weather metaphor also getting back into the groove on the counter racist grind I was so disgruntled I was trying to find where Neely Fuller Jr. was talking about Australia and how that was a colony for albino squirrels race soldiers because he said man that's how Australia got formed we got a royalist system here on the planet system of white supremacy he said these are white people that were so bad we don't even want them around here get out of here ah. you're too awful and they just sent them away we don't even want you in prison here ah. but We'll send you to Australia and you can be a king and a queen. And they got to Australia and what did they do? Immediate genocide against the Aborigines. And then sit around and make movies about it called Rabbit Proof Front uh Rabbit Proof Fence about an albino rabbit and racism. Anywho, uh did our three hours basically uh, much obliged folks tuning in hopefully worthy of your time and energy uh, eat well race soldiers make that a challenge but eat well they some make your food your medicine if you are not feeling well even in fact it is recommended if you are not feeling well to try to minimize sugar 
that is definitely the time you do not want to gorge on ice cream and uh, cookies and at this time of year cakes and pies and cobblers and all the rest like, eh. unsweetened tea no sodas even really no fruit juices unsweetened tea water that's what you want to get some ginger love it but I've seen that repeatedly sugar depresses your immune system if you're not feeling well try to avoid sugar might be more challenging this time of year but system of white supreme obesogenic environment got that term from Judith and Layson's book that's what they have us in it is not designed for optimal health optimal immune efficiency not at all we have to be very deliberate about that and from a young age and the same deliberate attention to safety with all of the smartphones and iPhones and everything that right there is why you can't have a one year old and then give them an iPhone even giving them your phone eh. nah nah you got to talk about all the talk about 200 questions ask that before you get to the bedroom are you about replacing white supremacy with justice no oh, okay be a shorter conversation we have children what do you think about the cell phone might have to spend a whole day talking about that get some literature too sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy holiday weekend be mindful holiday month basically creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring it is a in my view huge act of black self-respect someone is sick they have to go to the hospital just be there to bear witness and ask courteous questions cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.